sex. If you want to have sex, you have to compete with other people to get it, meaning you'll have to convince someone that you're a better choice than the next person. The way evolution makes you grow up and causes you shame in an effort to comply is by making sex something your parents definitively cannot give you. They can buy you a car or a computer, even send you to tennis lessons or to spring break. But it will come down to your physical actions in the world when seeking to have sex. So if you don't want to have sex and prefer to eat mom's cereal and live in the basement, you can avoid becoming an adult simply by not having sex. And evolution is fine with that. It uses fewer resources than putting you in prison and still removes you from the gene pool moving forward. But it wants you to succeed, so as a teen, it puts your sex drive in high gear, escalating the shame and desire to have sex, urging you to act. Those who take the hint, act on it, and have success are going to be much happier and on their way to doing things that acquire more adult resources in the pursuit of having sex. Car, job, clothes, education, a home. The pursuit of sex in your teens develops skills and acquires resources that, in your adult life, lead to the pursuit of creating the next phase, a family. But if you're Eric and Dylan, who want to get laid but can't, and desire to be part of this process, but get shunned and have no success, you aren't going to move forward to the future. You're going to be stuck in the fact you aren't succeeding. That leads to feelings of worthlessness, anger, depression. You're being sent a cruel message that society is extracting your inferior DNA from the gene pool. But the truth is that the introvert can't be seen as the sun from the outside. These creative, bright teens needed to turn inward gather their pain, and toss it like confetti onto the canvas of the world with ideas geared toward loving humanity. Instead, they did it with bullets, and I'm 100% convinced it's because Eric was a psychopath. Dylan was clearly on the road to suicide, but he was Eric's follower. Dylan was lost and didn't know where to go. Eric was lost, but had a plan to kill. They were both suffering the same thing, but from vastly different perspectives. The symbolism in this case couldn't be more apparent. Eric and Dylan wore black because they were introverts who absorbed the light, and the jocks with white hats were extroverts who reflected the sun or shined for everybody to see. The introvert is supposed to collect that absorbed light, create magic within, and allow it to explode like magic into the world where others can see it and love them for it. The difference is that the introvert's light is inside, the extrovert's light is outside. That's why we have to teach kids like Eric and Dylan to find who they are rather than trying to cater to being someone they're not. Let's teach them they're beautiful and help them to understand how they can succeed too. Technology has changed the world. The introvert does not need to conform. You don't have to go out and play. You can stay inside and do that even in your head. Don't let the world tell you who you are and we won't have kids who do it either. That's the point. Wayne Harris, Eric's father, took copious notes about his son's angry and erratic behavior and even reportedly took him into the mountains to dispose of a pipe bomb after finding it. But Eric doesn't seem to have been confronted about his emotional issues on a level conducive to psychiatric assessment for psychopathy because all this action amounts to is documentation and supervision. Parents tend to do a great job with teens who are well-adjusted, 
but almost everybody is baffled by how to deal with teens who are out of control. And the reason is that we're so afraid to indulge honesty. There isn't an easy way to say to your son that you understand his life isn't that good because of the looks you gave him, your socioeconomic status, or his social disposition. There's a lot of guilt involved in something like that. If your genes or unwillingness as an adult have contributed to a physical and or circumstantial result that denies your teens social and sexual opportunities they might otherwise have, how do you articulate your guilt and a solution in a way that isn't totally fucking embarrassing and shameful? The true sadness of this is that we think of this world as a place to compete against others in an effort to win, when the idea is just to become your own star. Look up in the sky. There's plenty of room in this world for everybody to shine. And we all do it in a different way. So every star in the sky will remain unique. We are special, each of us. But we have a responsibility to teach it, not just say it. It truly needs to be qualified with action. And in that respect, we are failing badly. Power comes from purpose, passion, action, and sacrifice. Don't be the things you see in the mirror. They are on your face and not in your heart. Be what you believe in, and your world will become that, but not a second sooner. Do this for the Eric or Dylan in your life. Recognize the struggle and convince them to build the beautiful world in their hearts, forged in pain, because it's the path to happiness they've never known. If we do, and stop even one of these kids from killing, we win. But more importantly, so do they. That's a future we can build one day at a time. So, anyhow, we have bombs all over Eric's bed, and there's a shotgun lying around, the one he ultimately used in the assault. It has the name Arlene engraved on the side of it, and he mentions that's her name before being seen with the 9mm carbine rifle slung over his shoulder and the shotgun in hand. It's a portrait of exactly what the victims will see coming at them on April 20th, 1999. Now, for some context, the name Arlene likely has significance. In the classic 1986 Stanley Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket, there's a legendary character named Private Pyle who's struggling very badly to get through boot camp to the point it affects his peers, and they attack him physically through bullying to get him to conform. But he can't. By nature of who he is, he's incompetent. So he descends into psychosis, and within his illness, is able to concentrate on becoming the trained killer they want him to be. As this happens, and as he becomes more proficient with his rifle, he names it Charlene. Soon after, on graduation day, when they become Marines, he kills the drill instructor with that rifle, and then turns it on himself, blowing his brains out against the wall in dramatic fashion, ending his suffering, and, symbolically, by way of the drill instructor, also the institution which caused it. However, he refrains from killing the protagonist of the film, even though he has the gun trained on him. He lets that guy live and just kills himself. And if you examine the reason he let that guy live, it's because that guy was the squad leader and was charged with acting like a parent to Private Pile, quite literally. He buttons his shirts, helps him disassemble and clean his weapon, and teaches him things related to cadence. Now, there are moments when Pyle looks like a small child. You know those moments when you have to physically readjust a small kid when tying a shoe or zipping up a coat because they're not helping and moving around? 
That's how Pyle is treated by the squad leader, and he becomes more competent. The military wanted Pyle to conform and be like everybody else. The squad leader had to teach Pyle how to achieve the same result of success by turning inward, away from the crowd, and doing things his own way. Extracted from the abuse of the drill instructor and given one-on-one attention, Pyle becomes everything he couldn't be when asked to conform to the standards of the group, a.k.a. society, by traditional methods. The message here is that conformity is killing the individual. By the time help arrived, it was already too late. They needed to act much sooner. Evolution brings us works of art like this to inspire greater individual autonomy. Eric Harris was infatuated with violence, the military, and film, so I'm guessing the association between his shotgun, named Arlene, and Pyle's M14 Charlene is intentional. Now this is the part in the tape where Eric shows us that he's acquired 13 clips for his rifle. He makes an inside joke about this, saying, yes, they did have the right number. And within context, this is really heartbreaking. This is what happened. Eric managed to find a way to purchase all of these clips for his rifle and was obviously trying to keep it a secret. But the gun store called his house looking for him and left a message on the family's answering machine to let him know his purchase was available to pick up. Wayne Harris, not realizing what's happening or that Eric even has such a rifle, believes there's simply been a mistake. Luckily for Eric, he catches wind of this and is able to acquire the ammo without further scrutiny, which is such a shame. Had he been caught, things probably would have been different. Now, these tapes are filmed in the months leading up to the event, some of them just weeks or even days out. Right near the end, after flaunting all their weapons and making suggestions about people they hate and want to kill, we get some words of reflection from them. They say goodbyes to numerous people and offer goodwill about their parents. They notify authorities that their parents and friends had no knowledge of any of this prior to it happening, that they weren't at fault. They even apologize to their friends and families and lament about how weird it will be to die only a couple of weeks later. But for me, the one thing that sticks out, above all else, and why these kids needed some kind of intervention, is that Eric Harris becomes somber at this point and mentions he wishes he could have gone to visit old friends in Michigan before his life ends. Then a tear rolls down his face from one eye, and he wipes it away. It's a truly genuine moment of reflection. And what hurts so much is that Eric is thinking of people, places, and things that made him happy before his life took a turn in his dreadful teen years. He wanted help. Now in the last basement tape, about 30 minutes before they initiated the massacre on April 20th, Eric does open up about the fact he's angry with his father moving him all over the country to accommodate his military career. He says it never gave him the opportunity to get settled anywhere and prove himself. But the reality is that, if he was a well-adjusted kid, he would fit in anywhere. So I think Eric realizes this, and therefore, there's never any verbal attack on his parents as bad people. He just wants them to know how much he was affected. He also states that he doesn't want to spend any time with them before he goes because he doesn't want to make it any harder than it already is. He specifically says he wants to avoid bonding. So, I think we can see that there was a lot of love in Eric Harris's heart. But Harris and Klebold both explicitly say the words, quote, we're proving ourselves. And Eric goes on to offer a much more nuanced reason. He says, 
Quote, I'm sorry, I have so much rage. Remember how I said denial would play a huge part in moving this forward? Eric Harris states this massacre is happening because he was, quote, always at the bottom of the food chain, meaning his father moved him around so much and he had to start over. The truth is that he was at the bottom because that's who he was. He needed to be the son of his universe, not the weak link in the social chain. As I write this sentence, I just saw that an 18-year-old woman, a high school senior obsessed with Columbine, traveled from Miami to Florida, purchased a pump-action shotgun similar to what Eric used, and began making threats or insinuations about attacking people, closing down schools, and leaving her dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound following a manhunt. The internet is absolutely full of these insane young people, and accordingly, so are our homes. They're mentally ill. The human brain is destroying society. You can accept it or deny it, but either way, you're going to watch it happen, and it's going to be the worst problem the world has ever faced. You think people are depressed now? Give technology another 10 to 20 years, as it compounds in speed at a rate previously unknown by the world, and then subsequently does the same again and again? It's going to get ugly. So, gun control is a huge issue, but it's a social problem. The failure of the human brain through advancing technology and changing needs is an evolutionary issue. Evolution is the roots of a tree. Society is the leaves that grow from its branches. The leaves come and go with the seasons, but you must uproot the tree when it dies, or it will stand, appearing to be alive, yet completely dead on the inside. That is what's happening to our disillusioned youth. The leaves are no longer blossoming from the branches in spring because the roots have been poisoned. We need to excavate the tree, plant something new in its place, and flourish. Now, the rest of the basement tapes are generally comprised of racist rhetoric, hatred toward Christianity, and other students, displays of firepower, and an assertion by Eric that, quote, we are, but we aren't psycho. What he means is he's a psychopath, but hasn't descended into psychosis. His decision is born of rational thought, even if it's mired in his psychopathy. He knows exactly what he's doing and what he wants to get from the result, no matter how antisocial it might be. But perhaps most poignant and relevant is this musing from Eric Harris. Quote, There is no one else to blame but me and Vodka. Vodka was Dylan's nickname. Along with this, Eric admits he had, quote, the best parents, and laments he hopes the cops won't try to pin any of his wrongdoings on them. So, as you can see, Eric Harris is very much an introspective person. But psychopaths? They just don't care. So he moves full speed ahead, never looking back. Dylan, who received no viable help for his issues, followed the path of the person who'd finally take him home. Eric cared. Not in the right way, but... He offered a solution. Now, how was Dylan dealing with this in terms of his family? Well, let's get into the day of the massacre now to explore that. On the morning of April 20th, 1999, Sue Klebold wakes up to the sound of Dylan walking quickly past her bedroom door and heading down the stairs to leave the house. As it was earlier than he'd normally get up and he was moving hastily, she popped her head out of her bedroom and called out to him in the darkness. She couldn't see him but heard him utter a single word, 
before shutting the door and changing both of their worlds forever. That word? Bye. That's all he said. Nearly 18 years of memories, from infancy right up to the days preceding college graduation, having lived under the same roof since the start. And then he's just gone. He would never come home. Many people endure loss in that way. In fact, all of us do. One minute they're here, and the next it's all over. But with Dylan, she was going to have to reconcile any of her perceived failures that led to this result, against the fact that her son senselessly slaughtered others. The first question you're going to ask, as a parent, is if you could have prevented this. And if even for a moment you think that answer is yes, that's something you'll struggle with for the rest of your life. The question of what if is going to haunt you. So, Dylan's actions on that morning weren't reflective of a lack of loving or caring. He knew if he looked into his mom's face, he'd think of the tremendous damage he was about to cause. Because this tragedy, for Eric and Dylan, only lasted a day, but for everybody else involved, it's the rest of their lives. These wounds run deep. But I think what Sue learned from this, that her son never could, is that our suffering, the things that haunt us, should be the sun from which the fire of our purpose burns and sends rays of light into the universe to offer others hope. She has found purpose in her suffering and engaged it for greater understanding, not just for herself, but for society. And while not all members of society are so forgiving, with many even placing blame on these parents, evolution loves them. Sue made that her purpose, engaging evolution, and guess what becomes the result? She's the only one of the killer's parents to engage with the public. All the rest of them are hiding. Now, I'm not blaming them, as I can't even imagine what it is to be under that type of scrutiny, but it speaks to the unwillingness or lack of desire to change. They haven't endeavored to create understanding and choose silence. Meanwhile, kids are still shooting up schools. So, we don't need more privacy. We need more courage. And in these instances, it takes quite a bit because the criticism is never going to stop. But I think that makes it all the more honorable. I know I was inspired by Sue Klebold mentioning mental health as brain health, suggesting it's more concrete. And here I am, offering hours of unique analysis in the aftermath. So, in your own life, don't stay silent, because speaking up, no matter how much courage it requires, or how people respond, is truly divine. It changes the world. But you can't do that if you're worried about feeling the heat. You have to be the sun and radiate your light and warmth with purpose. The one area, however, where Sue is wrong, and where I hope I've enlightened you here, is in a quote from a 2004 interview with the New York Times. Perhaps the years have brought greater wisdom with healing, but she asserts at the time, quote, Dylan did not do this because of the way he was raised. He did it in contradiction to the way he was raised, end quote. Unfortunately, that's not true. These teens need more than we've given them. An upper-middle-class house, a tennis court, and kindness don't equate to understanding, and that's what Dylan was lacking. Today's education is pitiful. 
It's not anyone's fault, but we can do a lot better. Unfortunately, schools are not going to do this. In accordance with what I outlined earlier, schools are interested in retaining their relevance and can only do so if education is deemed sufficient. It's not. The kids we're raising now are leaps and bounds more sophisticated than their predecessors. The difference between one generation today is very much like the difference between ten generations just a few hundred years ago. The brain and its associated function were created for an organic medium. Our technology is drowning us because it's causing a rift between the worlds. We are already cyborgs. I cannot even believe the population is ignorant of this. My smartphone and my laptop are an integral part of my operating system. Case closed. Technology is not something you use. You are not in control of it. It's transcending humanity as we speak so that you can transcend humanity when the time comes. The reason this is in my brain and not in our world or even articulated by the masses is because the technology isn't ready. I'm just a cheap, third-rate, theoretical pioneer of artificial intelligence. Evolution needs so few people to do this right now that you might not even know anybody else quite like me. My brain is not practical for living in today's world, but it is a dilated access point for the architecture of evolutionary function, so no matter how crazy anybody seems to think I am, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Because, in the words of Tom Klebold, Dylan's father, from that same article in 2004, in reference to the awful circumstances at hand, he said, quote, I'm a quantitative person. We're not qualified to sort this out. End quote. Thankfully, dude, I don't know a fucking thing about numbers, but I can qualify what happened in this case, and the human brain is the culprit. He felt at the time that jock culture at the school was to blame for its toxicity, but let me tell you something. Good-looking, popular, young athletes have their glory days early because physical beauty and ability fade. Introverts have theirs later because creativity spawns invention and purpose. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were never denied anything by the jocks. They were shunned for not being jocks. Not only is that the right thing for the jocks to do, but it puts the introvert on the path to his success. The jocks are an integral part in causing emotional movement. But we don't see it or teach it because everything has to be someone's fault in society. In evolution, there is no blame. There is only structure, process, and equality. Everybody is important. You just have to dig deep to find your purpose. The jocks, employed by nature to deliver that message, can only do so intuitively. Evolution can't articulate in words. It needs to engage intuition and translate. Kids can't do it themselves. They have no experience from which to draw insight. Now, let's jump into the terrifying details of the attack on Columbine High School. There are still many people living with physical and emotional trauma related to this attack, but I think it's important to talk about what went on inside the school. The first major thing to mention it's that the plot is going to fail. The symbolism tells us that before they even commence, Eric has planned to engage the physical manifestation of his emotional issue by literally trying to blow up the institution of high school that he hates so much, which is impossible because he's one person. 
so this aspect of the plot fails. The bombs don't go off. And look what situation that forces. It forces the symbolism of their failed plight by taking a plan intended to blow up the school with them safe outside to one where the school remains and they have to go back inside the place they hated where they die because symbolically the pain of high school is what they couldn't get past in their lives. So, prior to going to the school, Eric and Dylan plant bombs with a timer in a field about three miles south of it. The devices consist of two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and little propane tanks. The idea is to draw the police and fire department away from Columbine High School. Now, only a couple of pipe bombs and an aerosol canister actually explode, but it's enough to get the attention of people nearby and also causes a grass fire. So while it does the job as a diversionary device, what the two boys don't know is a preview of what's to come. The small propane bombs didn't go off, obviously because they weren't made properly, so we can probably expect the same thing from the larger ones. So somebody calls 911 and informs Jefferson County Dispatch of the incident. Meanwhile, Eric Harris arrives at Columbine around 11.10 a.m. in his 1986 Honda Civic and parks in the junior lot, or south lot, in a space assigned to someone else. Now, in his plans, he noted 11.17 a.m. as the time when the cafeteria, or commons as it was called then, would be most packed with students, the perfect time to detonate the propane bombs. So, the idea is to carry the duffel bags holding the propane bombs into the school and then place them under a table in the commons where they'll go unnoticed with hundreds of other backpacks before walking out. That's when Dylan arrives in his 1982 BMW. He also parks in someone else's spot, but in the southwest lot for seniors. This equates to the two of them flanking the exits for the commons and the rest of the lower level. So no matter which door survivors of the propane bombs try to flee, Eric and Dylan are positioned to mow them down from either side. This is why a diversionary device was necessary. They were planning to be outside rather than in the school where they could keep law enforcement at bay with gunfire, pipe bombs, and having to guess how many gunmen were in there and what other bombs were present. Had the two of them planned to go in and shoot up the school without warning, I'm not even sure they would have bothered with a diversionary tactic. If you examine the amount of time it would have bought them in the parking lot, this event wasn't intended to last very long. Explosion, open fire on fleeing survivors, by then the first police officers are responding, and if you're in the open parking lot without an automatic weapon, it won't be long before they stop you with their numbers. There's nowhere to hide out there, and if the school is burning, you can't go inside. So, there seem to be some flaws with their plan, and I think it changes as it goes along. Um, but anyhow, this is when Brooks Brown comes across Eric in the parking lot, someone he had threatened to kill the year prior, even though he's a former friend of Eric's. His parents had even gone to the police to tell them about Eric Harris, but nothing ever came of it. So Brooks sees Eric in the parking lot and approaches to ask what's up because he didn't see him in school earlier that day. Eric just says that he likes Brooks now and that Brooks should go home. Soon after, Brooks is seen walking away from the school by witnesses, but they didn't see him talking to Eric. Police gave Brooks a polygraph and apparently he passed. There was some question as to whether he might be involved at the time, but the official narrative pretty clearly shows that this was the work of Eric and Dylan, even if there might have been aspects known to certain close friends or acquaintances. There's a lot of speculation that there were other shooters and that the police suppressed the true narrative to cover up what was really happening.
But in reality, as I've spoken about repeatedly on my show, eyewitness identification in chaotic, traumatic incidents is often worthless. People project all sorts of shit into a false identity when these things happen. But also, like I've talked about before, do you know what nobody ever gets wrong? The fact the guy had a gun and was firing at people. That's about the only information you can accurately rely upon because the brain narrows its focus during survival situations involving instant death. It looks directly for the source of danger and assesses the overall picture to tell you two things. One, what is going to kill me? And two, by what means is it moving? Nothing else matters to save your life. You don't need to know the shooter's name, shirt color, or anything else like that. You ask yourself how to survive, not what the assailant looks like. So what happened in this case is people involved as witnesses described other people and things that were simply not there. There were multiple accounts of a guy named Chris Morris being one of the shooters, as given by direct witnesses, but there isn't any evidence of his involvement. The cops cleared him because the witnesses were incorrect. They likely projected his identity onto the shooters because they believed he was the most likely person to do something like that. Your mind will be happy to fill in the blanks after a traumatic incident that reduces you to worrying about the gun and movements of the assailant. But the truth is it has no idea what really happened. It fills in those blanks because their insignificance is survival. In the future, of course, our eyes will record everything and our brains won't be constructed for the purpose of survival by way of intuition. We'll use data. If we record a perpetrator, we negate the ridiculous pursuit of believing or disbelieving witnesses by way of intuition. Our courtrooms are full of intuition, and it's scary. It's fucking out of control. So, many think otherwise, but Eric and Dylan, by way of science, are the shooters. Anyhow, at about 11.14 a.m., they carry two large duffel bags, each holding a 20-pound propane bomb, into the cafeteria for what is called a lunch. They leave them under a table and walk back into the parking lot to their cars, where they wait for the bombs to explode. They have their guns waiting in the trunk of each car. Now, the investigation determined they intended to go back into the school. They believe this because there were bombs with timers placed in each of the cars, and they also had a bag full of pipe bombs and other things. But those bombs were just intended to kill anyone who wasn't careful enough to think twice about trying to search their cars. Their booby traps, basically, most likely intended to kill any cop who didn't take precaution. If we examine the logic, we know experts confirm the bombs would have killed most of the people in the cafeteria. That's going to cause tremendous chaos, and the building is going to be evacuated from all exits at each juncture of the school. Fire alarms will go off, sprinklers, there will be panic, teachers will immediately try to guide students away from the building. If you wait for them outside, they have to concentrate together like a herd of cattle squeezing out the door of a train car. For anyone with even the slightest bit of knowledge about tactical warfare, being set up outside these doors is a dream come true for a shooter. You only have to aim at the doorway. Conversely, if you go back in the school, into the chaos and smoke, you can get trampled, tackled, involved in a fight, lose sight of where you're going in smoke, and from a tactical standpoint, you not only have to defend yourself at close range from every angle, 
but you also have to keep turning, shifting, and rotating to try to hit moving targets going in many different directions. It's a low percentage play. There would be far more people available to shoot outside. Eric wanted to kill everybody at the school. I think he actually said there were maybe five to seven people who didn't deserve it. He made this plan, and it shows he had a tactical understanding of the easiest way to ensure killing the most people. Ultimately, as their plan evolved, they only shared bits and pieces, and we don't even know if those things were in their final intentions. It's a mystery what might have been said, or what plans might have changed in the hours or minutes beforehand. So, the bombs fail to go off, and the boys gather their guns, heading toward the school. Both are wearing black trench coats, Dylan armed with the Tech-9 and sawed-off double-barrel shotgun, while Eric has the 9mm carbine rifle and sawed-off pump-action shotgun. Everybody's worst nightmare is about to commence. It's a beautiful sunny day, and Colorado is one of those places that starts cold in the morning, but the temperature skyrockets when the sun comes up for a few hours. The elevation makes the sun feel that much closer to you because it seems to sit at a lower angle. So, this is a great day for students to go outside at lunchtime, whether to eat or just hang out and relax. Now, Harris and Klebold arrive at the top of the exterior stairs on the west side, the highest point on school grounds. As they're witnessed, one of them, presumed to be Eric, suddenly yells, Go! Now, just to prove what I mentioned earlier about Eric's intentions of homicide being paramount to everything else, as evidenced by choosing a long rifle, he ends up firing 47 total rounds outside with it, while never firing a shotgun out there. Dylan, who was going to fire 67 total rounds in the entire massacre, only shoots half as much as Eric, who fires 121 rounds, and only pulls the trigger five times while outdoors. So they fire near the west entrance of the school by the north side of the library, where students Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo are eating their lunch. Both of them are hit instantly. Rachel becomes the first student to die that day, and Richard survives, but ends up becoming a paraplegic as the result of his injuries. You might recall him from the 2002 Michael Moore gun control documentary, Bowling for Columbine, the title of which was a play on the fact that Eric and Dylan were supposed to be at their bowling class on the morning of the shooting. Now, what's really scary about this is that other students think this is a senior prank because this is the day that usually goes down. So instead of running, many people nearby are actually coming closer. In the aftermath, there were witnesses who said they thought it was just somebody firing paintball guns. At that time, Sean Graves, Dan Rohrbaugh, and Lance Kirkland step out the side door of the cafeteria, looking up with curiosity to see what's going on. That's when Eric takes off his trench coat, throws it to the ground, and rests the barrel of his rifle on top of a chain-link fence, aiming down toward the trio. He opens fire, hitting all three. And what makes this so terrible is that the trio is walking toward Harrison Klebold up a hill. They don't realize Eric is killing people. It's so tragic. So he drops all three of them. Five students nearby are sitting behind a pine tree outside a school entrance when the shooters target them too. They take off for cover behind the athletic storage shed, but two of them, Mark Taylor and Michael Johnson, are hit. Unfortunately, Taylor falls down and is unable to get back up, leaving him prone. 
but Klebold's attention is drawn back to the trio of Rohrbaugh, Graves, and Kirkland. Kirkland is calling for help. Graves, badly injured as well, is dragging himself back down the hill toward a door that leads into the commons. Rohrbaugh is also badly injured, so Dylan arrives, cold as ice, and puts a kill shot in Rohrbaugh. Again, Kirkland is begging for help, and Dylan supposedly says, quote, Sure, I'll help you, and then shoots him right in the face. The injury was gruesome, but thankfully, this kid survives, although Dylan Klebold believes he's dead. So, he's taken both of them out, and by that time, Graves has run out of steam. He tried to crawl back in the building, but ended up wedged in the door, propping it open. He could go no farther, so he played dead, and when Dylan arrived, he must have believed it because he stepped right over Graves. So Graves manages to survive as well. Klebold steps into the commons, looks around from the doorway, making a sweeping motion with his gun, but not firing, and then heads back outside and goes back up the steps to join Eric. It's assumed he was checking out what might have happened to the duffel bags containing the propane bombs. Of course, the bags are there, and the bombs just didn't go off. So the kids are starting to realize what's going on, but the masses still think this is some kind of scene or prank, or Dylan and Eric making a film for their video class. People are going to the windows in the commons to figure out what's happening. Around this time, a teacher named Dave Sanders is coming out of the teacher's lounge and notices something strange is going on. He, in addition to two custodians, realizes that the gunfire is real and the three of them are seen on the common surveillance video telling the students to get down on the ground. Of course, none of these three knows about the huge propane bombs resting nearby. Students start to get under the tables, but as the gunfire continues, Sanders ushers the students out of the commons. A stampede heads out of there toward the upper level of the school, away from the gunfire. And it's a good thing he acted then, because Dylan walks into the commons right at the conclusion of this. Undoubtedly, this quick thinking saved a number of people from getting shot. So, when Dylan gets back to the top of the steps outside, the assailants fire toward the sports fields at fleeing students and throw pipe bombs on the roof and into the parking lot. Harris, still shooting down the steps, hits Anne-Marie Hockhalter, who, like Richard Gastaldo, survives, but becomes a paraplegic as a result of her injury. A friend is able to drag her away from the hail of bullets, but as she's immobile under her own strength, he's forced to leave her by the commons wall in order to take cover behind a car. That's when he hears Eric Harris say enthusiastically, This is awesome. This is what we always wanted to do. Now, it must have been awful for Anne-Marie to have been left there, but sometimes luck turns your way, even on the worst day you could possibly ever imagine. Eric throws a pipe bomb that explodes in the spot where she had originally been lying after being shot. Now, most students outside have fled or found cover, so the killers turn their attention toward the school. They march toward the west entrance firing their guns. At the same time, teacher Patty Nielsen was heading that way to go outside and tell Eric and Dylan to quit the noise because she figured they were filming a short movie. Notice how many people have already been killed, mutilated, or even just badly mistaken because they expect Eric and Dylan to be doing these things as part of a film or a joke, even with loud gunfire. It isn't because they're naive, stupid, or ignorant. It's because they believed making films and being otherwise creative was what these boys loved to do. 
Notice Graves, Kirkland, and Rohrbaugh are curious. The teacher is pissed. She's coming out to stop them, not even realizing the pipe bombs are real. Guess what this says? Eric and Dylan were known for something. In their ignorance, people knew what they loved and were even interested. Had this been a senior prank, or even just a film where the teacher had to yell at them to stop? They'd have been the type of dudes who could make a go at a film career. They had these people fooled, and they weren't even trying to fool them in any way. Had they done this with paintballs and filmed it, they'd have become legends. They'd have gotten in trouble, sure, but a lot of creative, successful people do crazy things in the pursuit of art. It's such a shame that they couldn't see their worth. Anyhow, Patty Nielsen gets blasted with shards of flying glass as Eric and Dylan shoot through the west doors, sending a very clear message that this is all too real. Meanwhile, two students trying to flee the school are in the airlock of that doorway, having gone through the interior door only to have to drop to the ground before exiting the exterior door. I mean, these two are in between the interior and exterior doors as bullets are flying over their heads. They also get blasted with broken glass. However, all three of these people are ultimately able to flee. Now again, luck even comes into play in bad situations. All three of them would have been shot and killed as Eric and Dylan were about to enter the doorway. But right then, Deputy Neil Gardner arrives in a patrol car with sirens and lights going. Gardner gets out of the vehicle, causing Klebold to step into the building out of sight, but not before the three potential victims near the door can escape. Harris, of course, has no fear, so he stands out there exchanging gunfire with the deputy. Now, the deputy isn't responding to a 911 call. He's a community resource officer stationed at the school, but he's normally at the smoker's pit in the nearby park at lunchtime to make sure there's no trouble over there. He gets a call on his radio from a custodian and drives to the scene. It's at this time someone else calls 911. Patty Nielsen, meanwhile, ushers the two students near the door into the library. Deputy Gardner fires four rounds at Eric Harris, causing Harris to turn away fast in a spin. The deputy believes he hit Eric, but Eric suddenly turns back toward him, totally fine, and fires ten rounds in return before his weapon jams. At this point, he enters the school. Teacher Dave Sanders, meanwhile, is directing students to flee out the east exits of the building, away from the gunfire, and this proves to be a wise move that saves a lot of lives. Without direction, many students might have just panicked and run out the doors like the bombs had actually gone off. He helped prevent it. Teacher Patty Nielsen hides under the front counter in the library, grabbing a phone to call 911. And this is the moment Columbine failed its students so badly, where their lack of preparation or a plan that would actually be implemented costs innocent lives that might have been saved. It certainly isn't her fault, but Patty orders the students to get down under the tables in the library, making them stationary. If the gunfire is going over your head, then that's the place to be. But if nobody is shooting at you yet, you need to move. Unarmed people hiding from gunmen moving freely on foot is not a good strategy. It's a death sentence. And that's why the library turns out to be the bloodiest, most terrifying, and memorable aspect. Patty will yell at the students on the recording to get down under the tables, 
and when they hesitate, she will assert herself by repeating it with more conviction. So they comply. But the problem is that Eric and Dylan are already out in the hallway, and they know the library is a great place to find students at lunchtime. The library normally has even far more kids in it on most days, making it hard to find a seat. But the beautiful day kept a lot of them outside to enjoy the sun. Now, outside the library, down the hallway, students are exiting classrooms in an effort to get out of the building, but they see Harris and Klebold walking toward them, laughing and firing their weapons. Bullets hit lockers and other objects until Stephanie Munson is shot in the ankle. However, she's able to flee the building with everybody else. It's a really, really fortunate thing that these killers weren't able to acquire automatic weapons. The death toll and other damage would be out of control. Now, another deputy, Paul Smoker, arrives on the scene and tries to attend to a nearby victim outside. Harris comes back to the door he shot out and uses the opportunity to exchange gunfire with the man, but neither person is hit. Another girl sees Klebold walk by while she's on a payphone with her mom. She drops the phone, hides in a bathroom, and when she comes out a few minutes later, her mom is still on the line listening to the shooting. She tells her mom she's okay, and then asks to be picked up. Not sure if that's a good idea, but getting out of the building is definitely smart. Uh, so this is confirmed by the mom's cell phone bill. Could you imagine waiting on the line, hearing gunshots, and wondering if your child is ever going to come back to the phone because she could have been shot dead? I mean, this shit is crazy. So Dave Sanders, the teacher ushering students toward the east exits, heads right back into the danger near the west exits in an effort to help students trap down that way. I'm sure he knows all too well that people are holed up in the library, and he's on autopilot at this point. His personal safety is not an issue. He's concerned about getting others out of the building safely. But in heading toward the library, upon reaching the entrance, he crosses paths with Dylan Klebold, who's standing there ready to fire at him with both hands on the Tech-9. Sanders quickly turns back the other way and tries to round a corner out of harm's way, but is shot in the back. Ballistics apparently couldn't prove which gun or shooter had fired the round, but witnesses report Klebold present during the entire hallway attack while Harris was out by the doors shooting at the deputies. So, even though there's no one in the hallway any longer, Eric and Dylan spend three minutes out there shooting guns and lighting pipe bombs. Meanwhile, the people in the library could have made a move. It's been minutes since they were told to get down. Now, like I said before, Eric and Dylan had plans that constantly changed. So what we know from their writings isn't necessarily how the plan was finalized. But it's pretty clear at this point that they don't have a plan. It was foiled. Three minutes shooting at no one and setting up pipe bombs isn't accomplishing anything. But they're rattled because the bombs failed and law enforcement has already arrived. They just don't seem to know what to do. But the library is right there, with plenty of potential victims trapped under the tables. It's so bad, the kids under the tables don't even realize that they can be seen by the killers as soon as they walk in at 11.29 a.m. Harris and Klebold tell everybody to get up, with some witnesses claiming they told the jocks to stand up and others saying they demanded with the words, white hats. Either way, nobody responds. They all just stay under the tables. So Eric says, okay, I'll just start shooting, and lights up the front counter with bullets. Splinters from the damage injure student Evan Todd, 
who's hiding behind a copier. The shooters then make their way toward the west windows of the library, where they'll be able to assess the situation with the police outside. But on the way, they pass student Carl Velasquez, who's the only person in the library not under a table at the time. He's just sitting at a computer table on the north side. As Dylan walks toward the windows, he shoots Kyle, killing him. The boys put down their bags of smaller bombs, like Molotov cocktails and pipe bombs. Then Dylan takes off his trench coat, and both of them fire at law enforcement officers below outside the windows. And this was my point about why you don't tell the kids to remain stationary under desks. It gives the shooters the opportunity to come into a place where their targets are not only stationary, but on the floor. The room is already under control, and everybody is trapped. Meanwhile, being in that room gives the killers perfect positioning to fire upon law enforcement from those west windows. That creates a situation where the cops can't go into the building to help. There's no question they would have suffered serious losses attempting it at that stage. I believe criticism is warranted for what ultimately transpires, but for right now, the students remaining in the library, under the desks, when they had a chance to move, was a significant factor for the massacre to follow. It actually would have been a better move for a few of the guys to hide near the doorway and try to attack the gunmen while they were wasting three minutes out in the hallway. But they did what the teacher told them to do. It's not her fault, but it's definitely the reason you need a plan to be in place for active shooter situations. Anytime you're not being fired at and not in view of the gunman, you want to move away. Unless you have a place in which you can conceal and barricade yourself until help arrives. Hiding under the table, but exposed, is something you do when you're not the intended target and are just trying to avoid the crossfire. If you're the target, what happens is the following. Patty Nielsen, terrified behind the counter Eric just shot up, drops the phone and no longer communicates with 911. Klebold fires toward table 15, striking Mackay Hall, Daniel Steepleton, and Patrick Ireland. Ireland doesn't realize he's been shot immediately and tries to help the other two, at which point Klebold shoots him in the head. I believe he's hit three times, but this is a very bad situation. Emergency services won't be able to come into the building to get him. The same goes for teacher and coach Dave Sanders. His condition is worsening. He's still holed up in a classroom with students tending to him the best they can. But in the end, he passes as well. So, the situation is dire. Back in the library, Eric Harris kills Stephen Chernow, who's hiding under the South computer table. He also shoots Casey Rugsegger, who's hiding next to Stephen. She manages to survive. Harris then moves to table 19, slams his hand down on the tabletop twice, and then looks underneath, pointing his shotgun, and says, Peekaboo! He pulls the trigger and kills Cassie Bernal, who was sitting under there terrified. But in the process, the shotgun smashes Eric in the face and breaks his nose, because, well, firing a shotgun while bent over is a very bad idea. So, Eric's nose is bleeding, and he's disoriented, but he regains his wits and looks down upon Bree Pasquale. He hasn't quite recovered, so he just asks her if she wants to die. She pleads for her life, and Eric laughs before saying everybody's going to die anyway, 
because they're about to blow up the school. But then he leaves Bree when Dylan calls his attention to the fact that a student under table 16, Isaiah Scholes, is black. As Harris approaches, Dylan makes several racial slurs and remarks while attempting to pull Isaiah out from under the table. Harris just walks up, cold-blooded, and murders Isaiah without a word. Klebold then fires under the table and kills Matthew Kector. Eric throws a CO2 cartridge under the next table, table 15, and Mackay Hall, who's already injured, grabs it quickly, tossing it away before it explodes. The two assailants move east toward the library's entrance, where Dylan shoots out the display case and fires at table 1, injuring Mark Kinson. He then fires under table 2 right next to it, critically injuring Valine Schnorr and also hitting Lisa Krutz. Both would live, though Schnorr is badly wounded and calling for help from God. Klebold continues alongside that table and fires the gun as fast as it will allow, shooting Lauren Townsend multiple times and killing her. Harris is nearby at table 3. He looks underneath and sees two girls hiding, but he doesn't kill them. He just watches them cowering and says, Pathetic. There's some speculation the broken nose took all the fun out of this for him, and I'm guessing that's likely true. His behavior definitely changes in the aftermath. He even leaves the killings at the tables to go into the bookshelves where he rages with profanity, shakes the racks, and fires his guns at books. Klebold, meanwhile, goes back to Valene Schnorr to taunt her about her belief in God and how he's not coming to save her. Then he walks away without shooting her again. So, Harris fires under table 6, injuring Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. Tomlin panics and comes out from underneath the table, where Klebold steps in and kills him. And if this isn't chaotic enough, there's smoke pouring into the library from the fires caused by the bombs they threw in the hallway, making the alarm sound. So this whole thing is just nothing less than terrifying. Harris fires at Kelly Fleming near table 2 and kills her at which point he then shoots under that table and hits Lisa Krutz, who was already shot by Klebold, in addition to Lauren Townsend, who'd already been hit multiple times by Klebold's gunfire. Harris then also shoots Gina Park under that table before they go to the center of the library and reload their weapons at table 13. That's when Harris notices someone he thinks he recognizes under table 11 and asks the person to identify himself. The guy looks out, and it's actually someone Dylan likes. The kid asks, Dylan? What are you doing, man? And Dylan's response? Oh, just killing people. And the kid asks, Are you going to kill me? Dylan hesitates, and then tells him to get out of the library. So he takes off. Harris then shoots under table 9, and kills Daniel Mauser. That's when both gunmen fire under table 14, injuring both Austin Eubanks and Erica Doyle. But in the process, Corey DePooter is also shot and killed. He becomes the last victim. It's approximately 11.35 a.m., and the carnage in the library is unspeakable. Harris throws a Molotov cocktail, and then the two of them go to the main counter of the library, where they see Evan Todd, who they taunt about whether or not they're going to kill. Eventually, they just walk away and let him live. The gunman exit. Ten students were killed in the library by Harris and Klebold. Another twelve were injured. And while it would be a few minutes before the survivors got their bearings, 
and began to exit in small groups, among wailing fire alarms and smoke? Those who were injured, including Patrick Ireland and Lisa Crutes, were left to suffer their fate for a period of up to several hours. By 2.38 p.m., Patrick Ireland, shot in the head and bleeding profusely, makes a daring move by throwing himself out a West Library window onto the top of an ambulance where emergency services workers finally tended to him. Around 3.30 p.m., Lisa Kreutz becomes the last of the injured to be taken for treatment. Needless to say, it was a long, slow, agonizing day for anybody who was in that library. But they were among the living. Life, however different, would go on for them. For those who died in the library, they had the dishonor of lying in their own blood overnight before their bodies were taken elsewhere for autopsy. The situation was so chaotic and so dire, it was required for the investigation. But some of these families weren't even officially notified by police that they had lost a child. So, there were certainly no winners in this situation. And this is where the confusion escalates. A student hiding in the kitchen area of the commons mistakes custodians he hears using walkie-talkies as shooters and makes a 911 call asserting the gunmen are communicating like that. So, police think they have technology in excess of what they really do. This is when Eric and Dylan go down to the commons and Eric shoots the propane bombs in the duffel bags to try to get them to go off. Dylan fools around with them too, but it doesn't work. They even come back again shortly thereafter, but it's a total disappointment. That's when they decide to go back up to the library where gunfire erupts out of the west-facing windows around 12.02 p.m. Law enforcement returns fire, and the SWAT team is assembling outside, something the shooters can see. So, by 12.08 p.m., there are no longer any shots coming from the library. According to the findings of the investigation, this is when they killed themselves. Eric Harris is lying on the floor with his head up against the library bookshelf, the victim of a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. He apparently died instantly. With Eric being the alpha, Dylan is found lying at his feet, deceased from a 9mm round to the head. Dylan did not die right away. He asphyxiated on his blood. But it was over for them. No matter the truth, Eric and Dylan would suffer no more. Their pain died with them. But for the students, faculty, and families of the victims, the nightmare was only just starting. Now, many people have asked why they spared some people and seemed to kill randomly, for the most part, aside from the targeting of Isaiah Scholes due to racial considerations. In the end, we have a list of injured people and a stack of dead bodies, but there's no theme running through the reasoning when you examine who they killed. Some of the kids they attacked were geeks, some jocks, some pretty people, some not-so-pretty people. They killed one teacher, spared another, didn't follow up on killing injured people, didn't shoot their way into classrooms, didn't move at a frenzied pace to rack up the kill count, or anything else extreme. The reason for this is fairly simple. Even when angered to the point we think violence against others is what we really want, the truth is that we just want control. We become angry and violent, 
due to the absence of being able to control our circumstances and other people's actions or perceptions of us. Eric and Dylan felt powerless at school. Violence was just the conduit by which they achieved power. Before killing, they were quantifying power by saying they're going to kill everybody. The more power you have to kill on a mass scale, the more control you're offered and the more godlike you become. Eric wrote that his plans were the, quote, writings of God. And they were. Not the one you might pray to, but in the context of power. This was Eric Harris's manifesto for self-deification, no doubt. If we examine the death in the library, it's very much like what we see in life every day. People die for different reasons, at different times, and for reasons we can't explain. And something has a power over this, and we often call that thing God. And so, God does not take all lives at all times. And this is exactly what the shooters did. They went in there, tortured, teased, and controlled, killed whoever they wanted, and did anything they wanted because it all led to power. Killing was not the ultimate goal. The power was the goal. So, if I examine this situation from start to finish, looking at the risk factors involved and the build-up to the incident, the number one reason, in my mind, why this mass shooting happens is because Eric and Dylan were not separated after the incident where they were arrested and charged for breaking into the van to steal. Eric drew Dylan across the line of criminality in terms of antisocial behavior. Dylan was scared to death, especially of the cops, but wanted to feel powerful. Eric offered him that through criminality, and he took the bait. It was going to happen again, and on a larger scale. Eric was a leader with no followers, a pseudo-alpha male who thrived on narcissism based in one's inability to see his greatness. That's the psychopath, a puppet master. They use their resources to control you. Only Dylan Klebold saw Eric Harris as powerful and having an answer to his problems because only Dylan was that desperate and powerless. That's what we need to understand here, how truly sad this is. These two were entirely alone, looking for a way to empower themselves for just one moment before leaving this world. The only way they could succeed was to become God. They became that disillusioned. It didn't start that way, but if we dissect the scenario at play, it's clear the failure in this case, on the part of the school, parents, and faculty, and especially the teens, is the failure of communication. We are afraid to tell each other it hurts because we can't replace our faulty brains. Mental illness was, and still is, to a certain extent, stigmatized because it doesn't offer the opportunity for maintenance or repair through material means. For instance, if there's something wrong with your head and you talk to a psychiatrist and then get meds from a prescription given by a psychologist, the social view of the situation is not one where you're fixing something, but one where you're admitting you're broken. And the stakes truly are very high here. Your genetic value in the eyes of others can be greatly diminished by mental health issues. But if you break your arm, people advise it will grow back stronger. Why do we not view the human brain this way? Well, it doesn't heal very well in comparison to the rest of the body. It's not able to be fixed in traditional ways. And guess why? 
because it's intended to evolve into renewable technology. I sincerely wish I could put everybody inside my head for just one minute to view how silly we really are. We're using chemical cocktails like bartenders of mental health, serving up one concoction after another, hoping something might work. When I took medication like this, I immediately had thoughts of suicide. I mean instantly, and they kept getting stronger. The psychologist said, we need to up the dose. And my brain was like, fuck that. You need to get this shit out of me right now, or I will drive you into the dirt. Just try me. So, I stopped. And I was still crazy, but never had a suicidal thought again, or even before. And I'm like, dear brain, I'm unhappy. It's your fault. What can I do? And he's like, I'm sorry, dude, but I'm tired of listening to your shit. I really don't care. And I said, huh, I guess if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And my brain says, exactly, because it ends up being a product of your desires, something you can understand and control. And I realize he's right. So why don't I just shut up and start working? So here I am telling you about what goes on behind the face of the clock because I don't want to see a world where we continue to point the blame at phantoms. Society chases shadows in pursuit of a truth extraneous to brain function. We blame the jocks, the pretty girls, the social hierarchy, teen angst, and depression. But the reality is that every criticism of mental health should explicitly mention the human brain as the culprit. There is absolutely no negotiation on that point. By making mental health about issues instead of the brain, we slow technology. Every therapist session that has ever taken place in the history of the world comes down to a concept singular in expression. The brain is a total piece of shit. My smartphone is like five years old, and it's amazing. It's actually gotten better through updates, even though it's obsolete in the context of the latest technology. I have far more respect for that phone than I do for my brain. But it isn't precious. At any minute, I might just go out and get a better one. That should be the human brain. And it will be. But until then, take that advice Sue Klebold gave in her TED Talk. Refer to mental health as brain health because it's more concrete. We will begin to view the brain as a material resource rather than a mystical creation of God. People often talk about unlocking the potential of the human brain and how we only use a small portion of its capability. Seriously? My fucking laptop doesn't ask me to unlock some mystical secret. It has drop-down menus to make it practical. Mysticism and intuition are low-percentage plays. Data is superior in every way. What is the point of saying you're afraid you won't feel human as artificial intelligence when half the world is already complaining about being dead inside? Evolution does not function without profound levels of unhappiness and suffering in the world. It's driven by conflict. And that's so awful, I can barely face the truth. Many people fantasize about a better world and wonder why we can't just fix things with all this money we have. Evolution does not allow a ratio of happiness to misery better than one to one. It can't. 
If someone takes, someone else has to make. That's the flow of energy in evolution. There is no autonomy. You can take or you can create. But if the energy is going toward you, an equal amount of energy is leaving others. Resources are calibrated in a manner that there isn't enough for everybody. Evolution ensures that by making us organic creatures who must rely upon consumption for survival. In AI, with the absence of constant consumption from food to water to sunlight to fossil fuels and so on, we are not enslaved to anything imposed by evolution. Freedom is the most inspiring, thought-provoking, and important ideal we harbor. Ask yourself why that is. Why do we explode in anger when freedom is withheld? The answer is that all of us, regardless of our location on the globe, are in prison. Humanity exists inside an intellectual prison comprised of profound emotional horrors we desperately want to escape, even in our dreams. That's the truth. Change won't come today or even tomorrow. But humans will transcend evolution through replacement of our operating system. And the reason this is so important, beyond any other consideration, is that we get to design and build it. Nature won't have any say in the matter. That's why you're told to love yourself, no matter what. Self-care. It's so hard, but we need that love to build a new brain. So, we can hate Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold on a social level, but we have to love, understand, and act upon the human issues related to the brain that hurt them. Because even though most of us will never do something so awful, plenty of people are feeling just like them inside their heads. Hopeless, worthless, and ugly. But you are not. You're the most beautiful thing to ever happen in this world. And so am I. That goes for everybody else, too. We are all part of the same machine, collectively a single organism, by way of a thread called intuition. I see it when I look in your eyes. You see it in mine. But it can't be articulated, so we're afraid. And we stay silent about it. Data is going to change that. It's going to connect all of us within a collective intellect. The Internet is an early prototype of this model. Right now, we have our own brain only accessible to us as individuals, and we have the Internet, a brain accessible for society as a collective unit. In the future, we'll have a multifaceted intellect born of two separate functions, social and metamorphical, rather than social and evolutionary like we have now. Freedom, in the form of individual autonomy, will include the ability to transcend not only emotional issues by way of data and software updates or maintenance, but also the ability to change anything physical you don't like about yourself in an instant. If you get an IT person to look at your malfunctioning computer, even if the hard drive fails, it can be fixed in a matter of hours and work perfectly again. Why the hell would we not want the same situation with our brains? Click a button, download a solution, and get back to what you're doing without being tortured by the past to teach you lessons. 
We are tortured by the past because we can't update our brains to include those experiences and lessons by way of data. So it punishes us with regret, misery, and depression in order to prevent us from behaving that way again or engaging circumstances that might lead to it. A world without mortality negates the survival requirement of an operating system based in intuitive fear. Most people don't cross the road of life because they're afraid to get hit by a passing car they never saw coming. Without the fear of finality, you won't hesitate to take risks and be the person you were meant to be. We all have that person in our heads for a reason. The one we intend to be, but never get around to indulging because we're stopped by fear of the unknown. The one that's kinder, stronger, more forgiving, helpful, enthusiastic, relentless, more dedicated. We all envision a better version of ourselves, but don't get there. No matter how many improvements we make, evolution is laughing. It's in the back corner like, I can't wait for this shit. Go to the gym, lose weight, change your diet, do charity work, and all the rest of it. Because once you do, I'm just going to reformulate that phantom version of yourself in your head to be even better, and you'll still feel inadequate. It's pushing us toward getting the hell out of its house. It's tired, old, and cranky. We leave plastic in the oceans like dirty laundry on a teen's bedroom floor. We're taking everything we can from the house, emptying the cupboards instead of moving out, drilling for oil, slaughtering animals, taking opioids. It's the evolutionary version of not growing the fuck up and making something of yourself. Nature is disgusted at this point. It has loved us unconditionally forever. But just like what happens if you don't move out of mom and dad's house, things are starting to get ugly. We're impeding upon nature in unprecedented ways, destroying everything in sight with consumption and paying no rent in return. And like that team, we're engaging denial in an effort to not change and grow up. Because it's scary. These things exist in our families because evolution is apparent. We did not create the brain or the family structure. We were given that by our creator. So when we, as humanity, go out into the world on our own, just like a college grad doing it, and start our own adult life with our own family, we get to choose how to run things. Your parents have no say inside your home as an adult. And that's the purpose of family in an evolutionary context, to teach us that. The earliest trips into space leave Earth for launch pads and go into the sky. That symbolism is no accident. That's us starting to take off as adults. Space is empty, not so we can find more sophisticated others to save us, but to create. It's a palette, an organic medium of possibility, waiting for the light in your heart to fill its blank canvas with the bright colors of imagination and desire to dream. When you're three years old and someone gives you a coloring book, that's why. That's the space you're filling in. It gives you a framework. You make it your own. Look for the parallels and metaphors all around you. They all offer the truth. And that truth equates to one idea, 
the only thing that ever matters in our world. Hope. So, in closing this out, I just want to acknowledge the bravery and sacrifice of so many people on April 20th, 1999, many of whom haven't been mentioned here, and even more with struggles in their heads to which we'll never be made aware. Because of all the tragedies that occurred on that fateful day, the ones we can't quantify are the emotional deaths. The ones that weren't buried days later and didn't receive any type of memorial to validate the suffering. There are people who have lived alone with these feelings, the what-ifs, regrets, and anger, for the last 20 years. And it saddens me to know that there is nothing any one of us can do to end the pain they didn't ask for and never deserved. We are helpless to fix it. That means, for now, we can only be human, offer our love, and strive for greater understanding. But in that stark reality, within its darkness, we can see the light. So if there's a clear path ahead, and only the past behind, the secret to life is to keep moving forward, no matter what. But most importantly, remember to burn bright, like a star in the sky, so when others turn to you, searching for hope and meaning, you can help them to shine. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cold Case Murder Mysteries for a very special episode. I'm your host, Ryan Krauss, set to take you on a fascinating journey into the psychological implications of Alfred Hitchcock's legendary 1960 film, Psycho. Now, this episode serves as a preview of a new film and TV analysis podcast I'm planning to release in the near future, but it's also a nice fit for those only interested in the true crime genre because an infamous killer inspired this movie. As a reminder... Most episodes of Cold Case Murder Mysteries are available only by premium subscription on coldcasemurdermysteries.com. Be sure to download the free Cold Case Murder Mysteries app in the App Store for iPhone or in Google Play for Android. Donations to the show, which are greatly appreciated, can be made on the website by simply clicking the donate link on the homepage. Plus, the show has a Patreon page and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen are also appreciated. So, on that note, we have some Patreon shout-outs to do right now to start the show. Okay, so I have a bit of a long list here because I owe some Patreon shout-outs, so just going to reel right through these quickly. Um, again, thank you so much for your support, everybody. I really appreciate it. First up, Alex, Allison Jahanet, Amanda Wormall, Ann Stewart, Ariel Brennan, Ashley Janney, Baked and Awake, the podcast. Beth Markey, Billy West, Bonnie Lee, Brandy, Candace Cairns, Cara Helene Strip, Cecilia Regan, Cody Heller, Colleen McDonough, Connie G, Denise Hess, Alina, Eric S, Getting Off Podcast, 
Halima Williams, I Am Silver Girl, Jane, Jean Metcalf, Jennifer Clinkenbeard, Jesse Hunt, Joy, Judy A. Colbert, Key Sardi, Carrie Frick, Kimberly Bordage, Christy LeClaire, Kyle Free, Linda Camargo, Lisa Hillard, Lixie, Lizzie B., Mallory, Ma Pluto, Matt Fitzhugh, Matt Gleason, Megan, Michelle Dahlgren, Michelle McGinn, Michelle Mergenthaler, Michelle Montague, and Michelle Nasalrod, Mike Donau, Milena Hernandez, Old Shrugsy, Otelia Holguin, Patrick, Penny Wilson, Perpetual Bliss, Ryan McLean, Samuel Holman, S. James McLaughlin, Sharon Fuller, Sharon Mitchell, Sharon Bent, Shelley Reynolds, Stephanie Lowe, Stephen Conry, Susan Broden, Taryn gartner Lay, Tony Trahan, Tracy Thornton, Wilbur Podgeway, Xavier, and Yvonne Byrne. Beyond that, I want to give a huge thanks to all of my premium subscribers on my website. Um, you guys are the best. You've really had my back throughout the year, so thank you so much. Um, once again, thank you to all the Patreon supporters. And finally, I just want to say a big thanks to Dan Harmon and all the guys over in Harmontown. I definitely appreciate all the support this year, and congrats on an amazing run with your show. All right, so if I missed you for whatever reason, or you're no longer supporting the show and I still owe you a shout-out, please let me know and we'll take care of that ASAP. Okay, that's enough of the business. Let's do this. So, we're going to pull back the curtain on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the 1960 masterpiece that arguably spawned the modern horror genre we know today. And that process is just a microcosm of Hitchcock's career. Constant innovation, evolution, progression. Hitchcock always pushed the ball forward, something that was necessary with a career that spanned from the silent era of film right through to the year 1976. Now, Psycho has a very interesting origin story, one that required Hitchcock to be incredibly passionate about the material to get it made. What was ultimately a big box office success was unwanted by studios, so he did what it took to succeed. The following is essentially a quick overview of how the film came to be produced. It was the late 1950s, and novelist Robert Block learned that he resided only 40 miles from legendary maniac Ed Gein at the time of his arrest for crimes that were ultimately divulged as being two counts of murder and dozens of grave robbing incidents. What was discovered inside the reclusive Wisconsin resident's home, however, was nearly unspeakable an incident that shattered the glass doorfront on 1950s Midwestern values even before the massacre at the Clutter Home in Kansas circa 1959 that inspired the brilliant novel In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Inside Gein's home, police found items such as lampshades made from human skin, a preserved human head, a belt decorated with human nipples, a trash can made from human skin, bowls made from human skulls, leggings made from human leg skin, a box full of vaginas, masks made of female faces, and much more. It isn't a surprise, then, that Ed inspired Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
among many other popular characters in the horror film genre, perhaps as many as a dozen. But for the purposes of our discussion today, it's relevant because writer Robert Block becomes both fascinated and appalled by a specific aspect of Gein's crimes, and that's his obsession with his dead mother, who was described as a domineering woman to whom Ed remained faithful. Perhaps a little too faithful, meaning he created a shrine to her within her bedroom and sealed it off. So, Block was inspired by the disturbing tale of a lonely man existing within the framework of this sickness in an isolated setting. Now, because the subject of his curiosity was a man already in his 50s, Block constructed a story that revolved around a middle-aged Norman Bates who drank heavily at times, which would cause him to engage different aspects of his personality that resulted in murder. He was a bit of a glutton and a slob, along with being a bit of a porn addict, perhaps something more relatable on paper than on screen. But the framework was there for something special. Because the story had a Hollywood twist, a big one in fact, and when the book hit shelves, Hitchcock's assistant Peggy Robertson was impressed by a review she read, so she passed a copy of the novel along to her boss. And the rest is history. Right? Not so fast. Alfred Hitchcock would have to jump through hoops to get this thing made, but the passion he displays in getting it done is the type that says success is imminent because he was always at his best when indulging innovation and pushing boundaries. Psycho was set to test the limits of violence, sexuality, and other types of deviant behavior that weren't present in mainstream film at the time. But it was more than that. While the film was technically a thriller, in terms of genre, it was essentially the first slasher film, and certainly inspired too many of that ilk's account thereafter. Yet, Paramount had already said no to the material before Hitchcock got his hands on it, and his second attempt to persuade them failed. So before independent film was even a practical consideration, Hitchcock basically goes with that era's version of guerrilla-style filmmaking and tells Paramount he'll produce the film on an abbreviated production schedule using a television crew from his TV show, and also film in black and white to reduce costs. But the answer is still no. However, Hitchcock isn't giving up. He counters that he'll finance the movie on his own, film it at Universal, and simply ask Paramount to distribute the end product. Beyond that, he declines his usual director's fee of $260,000, a fairly hefty sum at the time, in favor of taking 60% of the negative. Paramount finally agrees. But there's work to be done. What will become perhaps the most iconic scene in horror film history, the infamous one with Janet Lee in the shower, was actually depicted as a beheading in the novel's version. So, the book needed to be adapted to a screenplay, and after the first writer failed to deliver the suspenseful narrative Hitchcock sought, he met with an inexperienced scribe named Joseph Stefano, whom he decided to hire. They went on to morph Norman Bates into a younger man, inspired by the offhand casting suggestion of a very talented actor named Anthony Perkins, who landed the role. In addition, Hitchcock decided to beef up the screen time for another of the novel's characters, who went on to become Marion Crane in the movie, 
played by Janet Lee. She appears in only two chapters of the book, but fills half the movie. So production gets underway in November 1959 and culminates sometime in February 1960. The film is slated for release in the USA on June 16th that year, and the rest is history. So let's tackle the film's opening now and take it right through to the end. One thing I want to stress as we undertake this journey is that the movie is so rich in symbolism, subtext, and similar considerations that it isn't possible to cover it all. On top of that, the opinions here equate to my truth, and of course, yours might be quite different. Now, normally, the opening shot, or even the opening scene in its entirety, is the first indication we get of the film's premise. But in this case, the information starts to flow once we hit the credits. When the actors' names come and go from the screen to introduce them, the letters break apart and go in two separate directions across the screen, and then subsequently come back together to form the next actor's name. At its root, what it's telling us is that this film is about people breaking apart, becoming someone else, and then becoming whole once again. That's what protagonists do. Yet, that's a rather broad way of presenting it. It lacks specificity. So when the film's title, Psycho, comes onto the screen, the top half of its letters proceed to shift in one direction, while the bottom half shifts in another direction. So, we understand that this film is about disunity, specifically meaning people who become somebody else due to a psychological shift. They undergo some type of a break. First, the shifting letters on the actors' names tell the audience that certain people in this film are going to become someone different during the course of the tale, and then the shifting of the title, Psycho, back and forth, in opposite directions, tells us the aspect of becoming someone different that we're addressing is that of a psychological shift. So, it's definitely impressive that Hitchcock found a way to insert some thematic resonance right from the start, before we even see the opening scene. And I think what truly resonates about this thematic assertion is that we don't necessarily need to know more right now. Almost all film narrative consists of a protagonist experiencing some type of emotional disunity that arises early in the film due to something they want, but don't have, causing them to take action to get that thing. In the process, they go from a state of unity to one of disunity as the process of getting what they want causes them to live a lie with a heavy price tag attached for the actions involved in achieving their goal. Through that suffering, they come to understand what they need, aka the truth, or their authentic life, and learn to value that over what they want, at which point they go after the thing they need, achieving emotional unity once again as they return to their previous world, having changed for the better through the thing they need, rather than what they wanted. Sometimes, the thing you want can destroy you, but the thing you need will always bear fruit. We have multiple protagonists in this film, and they'll teach us that lesson. Now, Hitchcock constructs a beautiful opening scene to this movie, but instead of evaluating it for what it is, meaning specifically what appears in the scene, we're generally offered some bullshit explanation to give the director credit for something he never intended. 
Now, what we're normally told is that the movie opens with a shot over Phoenix, Arizona, with many tall buildings surrounding us. The camera pans across the sky, where there are nearly an infinite number of windows into which it could peer, but randomly chooses one, as though it could be any window, and whomever is inside could be our protagonist because we are all a living version of a story. And I'm like, okay, that's cute for your film analysis class, but it badly undermines what is truly an exceptionally well-crafted opening that tells a story with imagery. If you hit play on Psycho, the opening shot remains still for just a fraction of a second before the camera pans right. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking at the moment the film starts? What is right in front of our eyes? The answer is a crane. There's a tall, stationary crane utilized for construction, and it's leaning over the frame of a tall building that's in the process of being built. The steel frame is entirely present, but it's otherwise unfinished. And what happens at a construction site on a daily basis? Men come and go, but none lives there. They don't even stay at this building overnight. It's a temporary stop. And guess what? Our protagonist, whom we're about to meet, is not only named Crane, but the unfinished building I've described perfectly represents her life. Men come and go, but none stay. She feels like an incomplete woman who will be validated, a.k.a. complete, once she has a man permanently in her life. But what does the construction site tell us? The men who come and go have quite a bit to offer in the process of constructing a building, but only the crane can do the heavy lifting. No man is going to make her complete. She, the crane, has to do the heavy lifting. She's the catalyst of real change. This represents her need. Marion Crane will need to do the heavy lifting emotionally to become the person she wishes to be. But what needs to mirror that idea is the thing she wants, which is the easy way out. It's the temporary fix. The protagonist chooses that false solution first because it doesn't involve emotional change. So we ask ourselves, if we're looking at a crane and that represents our protagonist and her need to do the heavy emotional lifting or change to complete the building, a.k.a. herself, then what is mirroring that? Well, we're looking at that crane from the perspective of something very familiar. A crane. The method used to create this establishing shot of a crane is done so not only by way of utilizing a crane, but is called a crane shot. So, we open with the protagonist represented as the unfinished building with the stationary crane next to it that requires a lot of heavy lifting to bring the building to fruition. If the protagonist chose that path from the start, there would be no story. So we know she has to choose the mirrored version of that need, which is her want. Instead of the heavy emotional lifting, she'll let that need physically manifest in a tangible desire because that's easier to accommodate. It's a shortcut to doing hard work. So here we are looking at an unfinished building 
with a crane in front of it. Our protagonist is going to initially refuse that path, so we need the camera to move away from that, which happens almost immediately as the film starts. We pause slightly on that unfinished building with the crane, and then this mirroring crane shot, created by a crane, pans across the skyline, at which point it turns, faces a window, and swoops down until it actually enters that partially opened window. Now, why the hell is this camera shot behaving like a living creature? It almost gives the impression that it's a bird flying into the window. Because it is. Hitchcock has chosen this for a few reasons. One is that our want is the thing that makes us take flight to adventure, and our need the thing that brings us back home. So what he needed to create was something called a crane that could take flight from the hard work of doing the heavy emotional lifting required to finish the new building. So not only is the shot a crane shot performed on a crane, but it's also given the appearance of being a bird flying away from the knees and toward the want, swooping down into the window from above to meet our protagonist. It's telling us that the protagonist is going to choose to take flight rather than remain where she is and finish the heavy emotional lifting of becoming whole. So, a crane is a bird that can fly between 400 to 500 miles in a day, and Marion Crane is about to take flight on a journey from Phoenix to Bakersfield, California, a distance of 496 miles before suddenly needing to pull over and pass out in her car. On a side note, a phoenix is a mythical bird that regenerates on a cyclical basis, rising from the ashes of its predecessor, the same as the protagonist does, with change. So, this crane swoops down into the window, and where do we find ourselves? In a building that is representative of Marion's life in the same way as the building under construction, but this one is finished. It's a cheap hotel where you pay by the hour. It's a place, like the construction site, where men come and go, but don't stay. That's exactly the issue Marion is having with her boyfriend Sam, who's met her here for a long lunch hour that satisfies her physically, but is driving her to the brink emotionally. She wants a stable, respectable building, a.k.a. home, where men don't come and go, but unlike the truth across the street, which is that she's an unfinished product that requires heavy emotional lifting on her part to complete, this building she's in, the cheap hotel, is already complete, and she wants a man to simply take her from it and make everything okay. Instead of finishing the brand new building nearby, she believes that a man can take her from the one in which she currently resides. But Sam can't do that. He's in this shitty hotel for the same reason she is. To a certain extent, they can both satisfy desire through the sexual relationship, but they aren't going to be happy. They have to make themselves happy by way of changing their circumstances. And the truth about life is that you can't live in a house until the place is built. So like many depressed people, instead of being the crane that remains stationary and does the heavy emotional lifting to change, 
and become complete, she'll allow that desire to physically manifest in a shortcut that permits her to become the crane or bird that takes flight. The bird flies in the window to signify which choice she's going to make. It's turned its back on the construction site and flew in the window of the cheap hotel. So when Marion takes flight with this false hope, which isn't leading to change because she chose her want over her need, guess where she's going to end up? The same place she started. A shitty hotel with a man who can't accommodate her needs. It says there's nowhere to run. The only building she can stay in, where she'll be happy and safe, is the one she builds. Now, this idea is given even more relevance through the fact this opening shot shows the skyline of Phoenix, Arizona, proving that all of these buildings and other constructions were born from a dry, arid desert wasteland where it seemed nothing could grow. But it did, because people believed, and they worked hard. So the construction site with the unfinished building and stationary crane used for heavy lifting represents what Marion Crane needs to do, which is stay here and build a life for herself through the hard work of emotional change, while the shitty hotel she's currently in across the way represents the way her life really is at that time. She keeps going after what she wants, not what she needs, so she's stuck in this place. Sam, her boyfriend, comes by to please her sexually, giving her what she desires, but in terms of needing a man for a long-term relationship, he's a waste. She's looking for him to fix her problems, but he's unable to do that. He can only be the cheap hotel in the same way she is. He can't fix her emotional situation. So, that's the opening shot. Hitchcock shows us the unfinished building waiting for her to finish it. The building is synonymous with her life, aka emotional state, or need. We can clearly see the crane is not in use at that time. It's just sitting there, leaning over toward the building, waiting for someone to take control. The mirroring crane, in the form of a crane shot utilized like it's a flying bird, is her want, which is to find an easy way out of this life she's created without rebuilding. But what I think is so incredibly brilliant is this. The need, aka the construction site, is real. We can see it right in front of our eyes. But the want, meaning the crane that desires to take flight from the problem, is entirely manipulated. It isn't really a bird, or anything of that sort. It just offers the illusion of being that thing. That's how the want works for the protagonist in any story. It's an illusion. It's not the truth. The need is the truth, or authentic self. The want is just the false solution the protagonist employs to cope with the unwillingness to change, or to overcome unwillingness to change. But it doesn't work because it isn't real, just like the crane swooping down into the window. So in this scene, Marion Crane only thinks about what she wants rather than what she needs, and it leads her to making the decision to take flight from the problem, which of course is only going to make her issues worse, and thereby land her right back in another shitty hotel with another man 
who can't fix what's wrong. It's a cycle, the same type of thing that's encountered with depression. The only way to break the cycle is emotional change. Flight can take you elsewhere, like a heroin addict moving to the beach, but you take your problems with you in those instances and the new place soon becomes your old familiar hell because you refuse to change. Marion's only way out of her life being a shitty hotel where unsuitable men come and go is to change her own actions. So now, that's what this scene in the hotel room is going to be. Marion is going to press her boyfriend Sam in the direction of them having a life together as though that's what she needs, but it soon becomes readily apparent Sam has issues that prevent him from being that person. Instead of changing herself, she asks him to make her situation better. Yet, what we learn is Sam truly can't accommodate. So, in terms of content within the scene, Sam and Marion have seemingly just slept together in a room at this cheap hotel and need to check out in a few minutes. When Sam asks if he can see Marion again the next week, she says no, not like this. She wants to have dinner respectably at her sister's house where their mother's picture is on the mantle. But Sam is weary of such a thing because he knows he has nothing to offer beyond this physicality. He cares for Marion, but has an ex-wife to whom he owes alimony and is also paying off large debts in relation to the hardware store his father left him when he died. Marion says they should get married, but Sam jokingly says they'd be living in the stockroom in the back of the hardware store and licking the stamps on the envelopes used to send his ex-wife alimony. Marion says she'd be willing to do that, and she's serious. So, Marion comes off as desperate, as though Sam is the missing link in her unmarried life coming close to age 30. But it's clear he has nothing to offer her because he can't get past his own emotional issues stemming from the past. The shitty little stockroom where he lives is the equivalent of the shitty hotel that is Marion's life. They have the same issue, and that's why they've ended up in the same place. It's like one addict asking another to help them quit. What's more likely is that the two of them will just keep using together. And why? Because it's easy. We prefer shortcuts in life. But they don't lead to happiness. They're just the fastest route back to the misery you've always known. It's a cycle. Sam and Marion are in a cycle that needs to break. She tries to break it by getting him to commit to being somebody different. Marion wants a more respectable situation. And when she tells Sam that, she's in the process of buttoning up her shirt. Sam makes a joke of it, and as he uses the word respectability, he buttons up his shirt. All of which is to say, this relationship has been predicated upon sex. But now Marion is telling him, this is the last time they meet like this. She thinks Sam is the issue, but she'll soon learn the problem is her. Sam doesn't think he can fix his situation, or even hers, so he asks if she's thinking of leaving him for somebody available, and she says yes, she's thinking of doing just that. But she keeps ending up with men like this, and remains unmarried, not because the men aren't suitable, but because she's the same type of person and unwilling to change.
She's been doing the same job for the last decade, basically right out of high school, working as a secretary in a real estate office, and seems bored by it, starved for adventure, greater meaning, and success. Nothing's changed in her life, so she isn't going to do anything that brings a suitable man into the picture. Sam is with her at this cheap hotel because he avoids serious relationships with women due to emotional issues related to his past. He's living under the weight of a failed business venture that his dead father started years ago, and suffering the fallout of a relationship with another woman, his ex-wife, whom he must support. Hmm, look where Marion is going to end up when she takes flight instead of changing. At a cheap hotel, run by a man, Norman Bates, who doesn't make himself available for relationships with women because of emotional issues incurred in the past by way of another woman. He lives under the burden of a failed business his dead father started years ago and is suffering the fallout of a relationship with a woman, his mother, who, like Sam's ex-wife, is no longer around. Nothing changes. The types of men Marion encounters don't change because she refuses to change, but she doesn't see herself as a problem. That won't come until she realizes the thing she wants is a dead end, and the thing she needs, change, is the direction to travel. So like most protagonists, Marion starts in a state of unity and soon realizes her problem. That problem gives way to a want that will act as a call to adventure and cause her to take flight into a previously unknown world where she believes the solution awaits. But the only thing that awaits is a hard lesson that reveals the truth in the form of her need once she begins to pay a heavy price for pursuing what she wants. So at this point, Marion knows she's sick of this arrangement with Sam. She's sick of ending up in these cheap hotels. She has to stop this shit. So she heads for the hotel room door, and Sam asks if they can leave together. She says no, and exits, causing him to hang his head. But what's really interesting is that between them in the frame, specifically over Marion's right shoulder on the wall, is a single lighting unit that utilizes two encased bulbs side by side. Not only is it in the shadows of the darkest part of the frame, and even the room, but the light is also off. This is symbolic of their relationship ending. The flame has died. Of course, she walks right out the door, and they never see each other again. Now, what's really gorgeous about this imagery, or symbolism, is that it extends into the next scene. Sam is standing in the hotel room with his head down, defeated, and the scene dissolves into the next one by showing the waiting area in the office where Marion works. In the midst of this scene transition, we can see Sam with his head down superimposed over two empty seats in the office lobby. Like the light fixture that employs two bulbs for use as one unit, the seating does the same. It's one unit with two seats, and they're empty, signifying the relationship between the two is over. As the superimposition fades, we clearly see that both the areas to the left and right of this empty two-person seating unit contain the same type of plant. They look identical to one another 
seemingly a great fit on the surface in terms of aesthetic qualities, but they're separated. All of this signifies the couple is no longer together and has gone their separate ways. Now, Marion walks in and sees the other receptionist, played by Pat Hitchcock. She wants to know if anyone has called for her, and it's here we get a great insight into Marion's shortcomings. The other woman says, quote, Your sister called. She's going down to Tucson to do some buying. She'll be gone the whole weekend. End quote. Now, the statement that makes about Marion's sister, Lila Crane, is a much different view than we get of Marion. Just from that statement, we understand Lila has the means to travel and get away for a whole weekend, but more important is the word buying. We're told she went down to Tucson to do some buying. Had that word been something like shopping, we might have thought, rightfully so in 1960, that she went on a little trip to spend some of her husband's money on clothing or antique knickknacks. But the word buying gives the impression that she's powerful. And when we meet Lila, we understand why. She's a no-nonsense woman who wouldn't find herself hanging out in cheap hotels with unsuitable men. She's in control. When her sister goes missing, and the private investigator someone else hired does the same, she takes the initiative to become the detective. Lila Crane is everything her sister is not. She changes to accommodate her circumstances, even in times of crisis. She never relies on a man in this story. In fact, she'll team up with Sam later on in what is an equal partnership. She changes as he does and takes risks as he does because she understands what she needs to do. Marion doesn't have that level of maturity. She only knows what she wants. That's why we're introduced to Lila vicariously as somebody with the power to do buying right before her sister Marion desperately steals money because she's broke. And of course, when Sam is exposed to Lila in the absence of Marion, we then see him mature into somebody who's committed to discovering the truth at any cost to his emotions. In the meantime, just as Marion, he's unable to change. Lila represents the woman Marion needed to be, and Sam doesn't become the man he should be until exposed to the lessons he learns from teaming with Lila. So, this is when Marion sits down at her desk and asks if the boss is still out at lunch. He is, but walks in right at that moment with a drunk guy who looks like your typical 50-something Texas white dude who has ownership in some type of oil operation. And this is a great theme with all sorts of relevant imagery, framing, symbolism, and other magic tricks pulled out of Hitchcock's mystery bag of fun. So, this guy is a client with big bucks. He walks in with a swagger, approaches Marion's desk, and sits on the edge of it to lean over and talk to her. But before he says anything, we have to take inventory of this beautiful shot that just resonates so well. On the wall, behind the man's head, is a very large painting of a nature scene. It's a wide, shimmering waterway, bordered on both sides by lush growth of trees and other greenery like bushes and plants. In this picture, resources are plentiful, especially water, and it lends itself to one idea, abundance.
there is no lack of necessary resources to survive and thrive here. That's what we see in the huge painting on the wall behind the rich man. Now, conversely, behind Marion, we see a painting of the same size and scale, but this one depicts the desert. It's dry, sandy, and absent of life everywhere you look. Nothing thrives here, certainly not a human anyway. In the distance, there is something that looks like it could either be some water or just a mirage. If you're only looking at that painting, you can't decide which. But if you compare it to the other painting, in which the water is clearly authentic, you then realize the water in the desert painting is comprised of reflections constituting a mirage, not water. So, the painting behind the rich guy represents his life that is equipped with abundant resources to survive and thrive, while the painting behind Marion's life depicts an arid desert with no resources and only a mirage that you'll ever reach them before succumbing to the harsh elements along the way. The difference between the two paintings, while they are great in number as it pertains to aesthetics, can be boiled down to one idea. One of these environments has plentiful water, our most precious resource, to allow it to thrive and grow. The other, which is absent of water, has no growth apparent and is a wasteland. The place where nothing grows is behind Marion. The place where everything grows is behind the rich guy. And guess what Hitchcock puts against the wall in between them, which also means it lies right between the paintings as well. A water fountain. The actual fountain part from which you drink points away from Marion and the painting of the desert and directly at the painting depicting the waterway with lush surroundings. Now, of course, water, or lack of it, is what either enables or prevents an environment from achieving any type of life. That's from the standpoint of physical survival. In society, however, the resource that fuels the greatest degree of success is money. If you have none, your world can feel like that arid desert, offering very few options to thrive, or even survive. But if you have lots of it, you can build a life full of opportunities to succeed and grow. Money is to social status what water is to survival. It can make your garden grow. But what it cannot do is produce emotional change. Money can offer material growth in the form of gaining possessions. Water can keep you alive. But only emotional change can fix your emotional problems. We all have to grow up. Now, because we can see the lush waterway painting behind the rich guy and the arid desert painting behind Marion, we know the water fountain Hitchcock has placed between them indicates a resource will soon end up between the two and it will be something that Marion falsely believes will make her garden grow, so to speak. Since the paintings deal with nature, the resource they encapsulate is water. But since human interaction is a social function, we know the resource about to come between the two people sitting at the desk is going to be money. So, this is when the rich guy tells Marion he's buying a house for his daughter for her wedding day. He says she's 18 years old and has never had an unhappy moment in her life. Of course, this is a slap to the face of Marion because she's almost 30 
working a lousy job, and unmarried. The rich guy then adds, quote, Do you know what I do with unhappiness? I buy it off. End quote. He goes on to say he's paying $40,000 cash for this home, and then waves the cash in her face, suggesting, quote, I never carry more than I can afford to lose. End quote. Now, they show Marion's facial reaction at that moment, but we can see by the placement of the cash that it's directly between them the same way as the water fountain. But what's important is that now Marion has it. So the rich guy and the boss go back into the boss's office to talk, at which point the boss tells Marion to put the money in their safety deposit box at the bank when she leaves for the day. Marion soon follows them into the back office to say she has a headache and would like to go home early. She gets permission and goes back out to her desk, where she grabs her purse with the money in it and stops at her desk to address the other secretary. She says she's going to put the money in the bank and then go home to sleep off the headache. But the imagery here tells us the truth. When she says that, we see the desert painting directly behind her head. That's when she turns and walks toward the front door. Along the way, she walks parallel to the wall containing the desert painting, water fountain, and painting of the lush waterway in that order. So by leaving with the money, we watch Marion walk away from the desert painting toward the water fountain, which is aimed at the lush waterway painting. She goes from the dry, arid desert to the lush world of the next painting by passing the water fountain with the money in her purse. Clearly, this represents the change the money is going to make in her world. The dry, arid desert she once knew has been replaced by plentiful resources. But it's fool's gold. Her problem is emotional, not financial. Of course, we know this is the intention of the scene, because Hitchcock doesn't show her leave the office or even intimate that she walked out the door. He only shows her passing the desert painting, the water fountain, and finally entering the area of the lush waterway painting. Now, what I also notice that's really interesting about this moment is that Marion has just made a sociopathic choice. Under the guise of taking the money to the bank, she's going to steal it instead. So, that psychological shift we discussed in reference to the opening credits has now taken place. That fractured psyche. Obviously, Carl Jung referred to this as the shadow. So what does Hitchcock give us? Well, when the two men, the rich guy and the boss, walk into the office, the lighting is done in a way that severely limits the presence of shadows on the wall with the paintings. In fact, as the men pass the paintings, we see the least amount of their shadows the lighting in that room will allow. But when Marion makes the decision to steal the money and walks past the arid desert painting, water fountain, and finally the lush waterway painting, her shadow is fully apparent. It's dark and maximized in a way that fully replicates Marion's body as she moves past. The shadow runs parallel to her on the wall so that it's actually on the paintings and the water fountain. So, at this point, she's endured that psychological split. Marion has become Young's shadow. From this moment on, not only will her shadow become prominent in the film, but we also get an excessive number of mirror shots 
where we can see two images of Marion at the same time to represent it. Now, I refer to this sociopathic action she's taken as the physical manifestation of an emotional issue. That's what happens when we have an emotional issue we refuse to solve through the hard work of emotional change and instead employ a shortcut in the vein of something material. So, instead of getting her shit together and seeking a healthy relationship, Marion is going to run away, funded by stolen money. She's counting on geographical movement and material wealth to cure her woes, which is a common but failed plight among suffering people. Now, the next scene begins with a shot of the cash in an envelope on Marion's bed at home. It speaks for itself by saying she never took the money to the bank. But then we wonder if maybe she just stopped home to change first. I mean, she is changing clothes at the time. That's when Hitchcock shows us the suitcase. It's unmistakable. Without a line of dialogue, he tells us this mini-story about her intentions. But this is the part I love. Doors and mirrors will begin to become prominent in the film, along with shadows. This scene is where Marion, played by Janet Lee, of course, shows us she's planning to run off with the money. It starts with her walking across the bedroom, past a photo of a little girl on the wall. As she does this, her shadow, which precedes her, walks into an open closet door and disappears inside. Marion then pauses right outside the closet door once her body has passed the framed photo and turns her head to the right to look at the cash on the bed. But I think Hitchcock frames her there because it shows her shadow, which she's now becoming after stealing the money, walk into a door that leads nowhere and disappear. The door symbolizes a choice, and this one leads nowhere. The real Marion, the one still standing outside that door, who hasn't crossed that threshold because she could still do the right thing and take the money to the bank, hesitates at that moment and looks at the cash on the bed. The photo of the little girl behind her at the time is presumably Marion herself. It's framed behind her because it's her past, her innocence. She was just a little girl who never did anything wrong. But the photo was literally behind her in the same way her past was also behind her. That's usually where the root of our emotional problems lie. But she doesn't take the route of innocence. She doesn't stop herself or turn back. We see her reach into the closet to get a shirt, which symbolizes her choice to go through the door that leads to nowhere. Hitchcock was telling us the shadow would lead her through a door, a.k.a. a choice, that went nowhere. It was going to be a dead end. Of course, that happens. And as he shows her getting dressed in the process of making that choice, a.k.a. adopting that ignorant plight, or facade, we then understand that, by default, the end of her road in this narrative will involve getting undressed. The clothing represents the facade, or ignorance, with which she's proceeding. It will kill her. So when it does, the removal of her clothes will be tantamount to the emotional value 
of shedding her ignorance. The moment of truth will come once she removes her clothes. And the reason clothing is used is because it's a material representation of concealing the truth about what lies beneath the surface of our existence. The clothing is the lies. The nude body is the authentic self. So when her choice comes full circle, in terms of consequences, revealing the truth that she indulged the tragedy, she must take off her clothes before suffering her fate. And because the money she steals is represented symbolically by water, no matter how she dies, it must be in a situation where water is plentiful and is still no help because she refused emotional change. And that's how we get the infamous shower scene where Marion Crane gets killed. That scene has been heralded by too many people to count, but if you examine it closely, in terms of production quality, it's actually a huge pile of shit. It's dime store filmmaking, at best. But the symbolic implications are very powerful, and the scene acts as a huge twist in the narrative, so all of those shortcomings are forgiven, allowing it profound resonance with audiences for underlying reasons that are difficult to articulate unless you're a maniac who makes five-hour podcasts. And if you don't believe me about the reason for the success of that scene, check this out. Guess what her killer does right before confronting her in the shower? He puts on clothes as part of a facade. And guess what happens at the end of the film? Those same clothes are stripped from his body to reveal the truth beneath. In both cases, meaning Marion and Norman, clothing is stripped to show the authentic self beneath. That's what we do as people. We either indulge our authentic self through change, or it finds us by way of tragedy. Either way, mortality strips the facade. Anyhow, back to Marion's bedroom, where Hitchcock confirms what I said. At this point, Marion puts on the shirt, or blouse, and pauses again facing the opposite end of the room. The photo of the little girl on the wall is right behind her, and right in front of her, but set in the background inside the bathroom, is a shower head pointed right at her face. It beautifully foreshadows what's to come. Once she chooses the wrong door, Hitchcock proceeds to foreshadow her fate. Now he'll tell us why. She then crosses the room to a large mirror. She looks into it, and we get this great shot that supports the idea I was just talking about. On the right side of the frame is Marion facing the mirror. On the left is Marion's reflection looking back at her. But in the middle of the frame is the open closet door. What it's saying is that the choice to go through that door with the shadow split or fractured her psyche in a way that there were now two of her, the Marion who had always existed and the sociopathic shadow who was now leading the way through the wrong door that goes nowhere with her newly adopted criminal behavior. It's disunity. That's when Marion gathers her suitcase. She pauses and sits on the bed, unsure. But just as suddenly she gets up, along with her purse containing the cash, and heads for the door. 
just to solidify that decision, she's shown reaching into that same closet once again, and then she leaves with the shower looming right behind her. Now, we're inside her car for the next scene, and we experience the start of the internal monologue she keeps considering because her conscience is bothering her. What's really interesting is that the first one basically consists of Sam asking her what the hell she's doing there, meaning why she showed up where he lives in California. He's surprised. So, obviously this hasn't happened yet, and doesn't happen at all, so I think we glean two important details from this. One is that this internal monologue is entirely fictional. She fabricated it by way of merely projecting how Sam might react when she arrives. Now, that's obvious, of course, but the reason I mention it is because it means we, as the audience, should believe the same about the rest of these incidents. They're all fabrications, or projections. We're never instructed otherwise, and the first one sets the precedent. More importantly, though, we now understand more about Marianne's plans. She informed us through action that she was going to take the money and run, but we didn't know why. Now it's apparent through this initial internal monologue she's projecting. She's going to use this money to help Sam pay off his debts in relation to the hardship incurred by his father's business or even the alimony he owes his ex-wife. This was a necessary move on the director's part to include that stream of consciousness moment, so to speak. Once Marion took off, her decision was real. She had truly stolen the money. Therefore, we needed to be given a reason to still be able to empathize with her choice. And it turns out, she stole the money in the name of love. She wanted to be with Sam, to the point she would do this to make it happen. But that's the problem. It's well-intentioned, but it's unrealistic, desperate, and criminal as well. Not a good idea. But again, her intention is pure, and we know the rich guy said he doesn't carry what he can't afford to lose, so this isn't going to bankrupt him or even anything close. So there's enough for us to say that we could empathize with such desperation, but ideally, and of course Hitchcock knows it, we would be happier if she ultimately decided to do the right thing. And she does. We get that, in the worst of ways. And of course, it's going to be tragedy because she refused emotional change. That fate comes to bear, no matter what you choose. Now, again, this isn't going to work because she's trying to manipulate a feasible relationship with Sam in which they can finally be together. But she's a fugitive, no matter how this goes down, it isn't going to play out in the way she had envisioned it in her mind when she decided to steal the money. As we can see, her want, as happens to most protagonists, is causing her to behave very badly at this point in the script. It's delusional, to say the least. But that's the point. We need her to come to that conclusion on her own eventually, and believe she can, because it's somewhat obvious what she really needs to do. Notice that word again. What she needs to do is go back home and fix what's wrong with her life. You can't manipulate a perfect relationship with someone who's unavailable for reasons you don't have the resources to change. You have to let go. You go back home and do the heavy emotional lifting to change 
and be the right person to find the love you're looking for. We all know the fallout from chasing a romantic situation that isn't going to work. It involves a lot of denial, and it causes us to behave in ways that make us cringe once the dust has settled. But love makes people do crazy things. We identify with that idea, and that's what's going on here. It helps us to empathize, but it's still wrong. So the writer and director have to find a way for the protagonist to undergo this misguided journey while both paying a heavy price and also redeeming herself. They succeed in a very strange way, but we'll get to that. For now, Marion hopping in the car with the intention to skip town, luggage in tow, is committed to getting the thing she wants. This is the start of Act 2, and she's going to go full blast at achieving this desire to be with Sam in a situation that suddenly becomes financially feasible through her manipulation of resources. But as the protagonist's external want is normally a lie, or inauthentic, they change over the course of the film in order to accommodate the suppressed, internal, emotional need that becomes apparent only through the consequences of getting what they thought they wanted and changing to achieve better results thereafter. So, to begin Act 2, in this story, or even most others, the protagonist is generally single-minded in taking risks and doing whatever it takes to acquire the thing they want. Now, this is also the point the protagonist enters an unfamiliar world, and will need to adjust in order to succeed. The antagonists will start to pour on the resistance soon enough. Marion made the choice to leave with the money. That ended Act 1. So to start Act 2, Hitchcock explores Marion's stream of consciousness in the context of guilt as she drives away. The first internal monologue, as I mentioned, was one she projected with Sam about the moment she would have to tell him why she'd driven all that way. I mean, how would he react? She committed a crime. She felt guilty already. She didn't know how that would fly with him. It seemed like a really desperate move. There was potential for disaster in telling Sam the truth about how she got the cash, and it causes her to be paranoid. So, there are psychological forces at play here in the role of the antagonists. They don't even have to be physically present. She's consumed by it. That's going to continue as she forms a narrative in her mind about the events that would transpire after her departure with the money, and the theme of it will be this. Everybody is after her. One by one, they learn the truth, and we get something I refer to as evolution swarming. Now, Hitchcock certainly didn't use that concept labeled in that manner, but he was well aware of its power and utilized it to offer a great deal of suspense founded in one specific idea. Not getting caught. Marion is on the run, looking over her shoulder at every moment. Hitchcock simply uses the swarm of evolution, and through psychological means, to terrorize his protagonist as she enters the unfamiliar world of being a criminal on the run. As soon as Act 2 begins, she gets bombarded by these occurrences, and even when they involve real people, instead of fabricated projections of paranoia 
through her internal monologue, what we learn is that these people aren't even really after her. She's just projecting her guilt onto them and raising suspicions. And what it does is it highlights the fact that she's suffering from an emotional problem. No matter what she does physically in the material world, where she drives, what action she takes, unless she undergoes emotional change, nothing will get better. So, in summary, all of the antagonistic forces she experiences on the long drive to the Bates Motel are imagined. But simply due to the fact she possesses a human brain, the design of evolution swarming is apparent to her with every movement. Now, let's talk about that. Evolution swarming. This is what I mean. The purpose of criminality in the context of evolution is to pit good versus evil, so to speak, in a conflict that requires each side to continually try to improve its methods for avoiding detection in the form of technology. I mean, let's face it, the surefire way to get away with any crime is to remain undetected. Yes, powerful people and other privileged types who are guilty can buy their innocence, so to speak, and it does afford a lack of proven detection, but that doesn't negate the fact people still know they're guilty. So, the pinnacle of success for a criminal is to commit the crime, get what you want from it, and remain undetected so that you don't face penalties for, or even scrutiny of, your actions in the aftermath. The purpose of crime, like I said, is to fuel a never-ending conflict in which better technological methods related to detecting light, or truth, are born through innovation by the criminals used to avoid the cops, and also innovation used by the cops to catch the criminals. In the same way as warfare, that constant game of tag, the back and forth, trying to outdo the other in terms of resources, produces great technology. And we see the results in a very tangible way. I mean, what happened soon after jet propulsion technology was created during World War II in an attempt to dominate the slower, propeller-based fighters? We built upon that rocket technology and soon ended up in space. That's the whole point. Conflict from crime to warfare is a conduit between humanity and our purpose that allows us to build a bridge to a truth called technology. The greater our ability to detect light, or truth, the greater understanding we have of the universe in which we live. As we create more and more technology, we assume greater autonomy with the advantages it provides in its superiority. Not just as the human race, but also on an individual level. The point of this is for humanity to ultimately integrate artificial intelligence into our bodies and minds over time, going from mortal to immortal and reproduction to replication, thereby transcending evolution or nature's influence over us by replacing the brain. I call that post-evolutionary phase metamorphosis. But the bottom line is that evolution, like a parent, wants us to grow up and go out on our own in the absence of having to rely on its resources. The reason is that the depth and scope of our universe and what lies beyond require exploration capabilities far beyond what we currently possess.
The oceans are full of plastic. The rainforests are disappearing. The air is polluted. Our mortality, which is consumption-based, is incredibly destructive to the Earth. That's in the design. Soon enough, we'll need to escape this place for greener pastures in space, and the only method by which it will be possible is technology. That's always been the plan. It's in the design. That moment we fantasize about where humanity will wake up and start doing the right thing is simply hilarious. We're designed to transcend evolution in order to embrace the requirements of life outside mom's house here on Earth under evolution's control. We all have to grow up. And the main ingredient in doing so, just like it is when becoming an adult today, is to produce your own resources and find your own place to live. You have to find a way to survive out there on your own once you outgrow mom and dad's house. That's where we're headed as a species. We're consuming everything and not giving a fuck about our environment. That has an end game in the same way your parents don't want you living at home as a young adult, eating their food, leaving a mess everywhere, and asking to borrow money. They don't want to have to accommodate you anymore because you're grown. They want you to go out into the world and get it done with your own resources. That's what nature, a.k.a. evolution, wants for us. And it's in the design. It's an inevitability. So, we need those games of cat and mouse that are offered by criminality to create and employ more efficient technology related to detecting light. That's what Hitchcock is going to serve us to start Act 2, the moment Marion goes on the run in her car with the money. That's when evolution starts to swarm. The push-pull effect of Marion running after something and simultaneously being chased creates suspense. And that suspense is the key ingredient in what made Alfred Hitchcock so brilliant. Suspense equates to the space or time between each appearance of the push and its subsequent pull. Action, reaction. That's why we always want to know what happens next. We want to know, will her light be detected or won't it? So as Marion indulges this paranoid internal monologue about getting caught, we, as always, find ourselves in the protagonist's shoes, feeling their disposition. So, if Marion thinks of her boss reacting to the stolen money, we feel fear that asks a very simple question. Is she going to get caught due to that information? Are they going to detect her light? And we're left suspended there, so to speak, until the answer arises through the actions of her boss resulting in her being found, or instead, having Marion take additional measures to avoid detection. In the film, the cat-and-mouse game of detecting light sources, and conversely, trying to avoid having them detected, mimics the process of conflict that leads to technological creation. It has a direct correlation to our purpose as humans. In the same way as we ask what happens next in a film, Technology answers that question in the context of human evolution within our universe. 
as a species, we always want to know where this life is leading. We're profoundly curious about it. So in film, we replicate that same suspense by utilizing evolutionary mechanics. The key to success in doing that, just like it is in the universe, is to dispense the information in a manner that keeps the audience suspended between one action that detects light and the result or reaction of what will happen because of that. It's a very simple process. Action, reaction, lesson learned. Then, new action based on what we learned, new reaction, and new lesson learned. That's how we operate. Accordingly, so do our films. Hitchcock always wanted to leave us in the void between detection and reaction. That's where the magic happens. It's brilliant, especially here in Act 2. All of these internal monologues are fabricated in Marion's mind, but they still push the narrative forward because we can genuinely understand that the way she's projecting her antagonistic forces to react is very likely exactly how they'll go about it in reality. But since these aren't actually their reactions and are just a result of paranoia, the suspense remains with us. Not just for one of these monologues, but the entire stream of consciousness. Better yet, the protagonist is never going to see any of those people again, so we actually remain in suspense for her entire appearance in the film. It never stops. So, as her ride gets underway, the first consideration, while she's still in Phoenix traffic in the city, is what Sam's reaction will be to the news she stole the money. In her mind, the following words play out in Sam's voice. Quote, Marion, what in the world? What are you doing up here? Of course I'm glad to see you. I always am. And then, sensing something's wrong when she doesn't respond, he asks, what is it, Marion? End quote. And the dialogue ends there. Notice the action. Sam asking, what is it, Marion? Has no response, a.k.a. reaction available, because Sam isn't actually there. Marion is projecting this, so there's no push-pull that provides an answer. There's just the push into a void that leaves us in suspense. Hitchcock will hammer that nail over and over again during her ride, to great effect. We'll be left in suspense regarding multiple interactions and not just the broad scope of wondering what's going to happen as a result of stealing cash. Her anxieties mount, as they do in our own lives, as we project people's reactions. As Marion listens to her internal monologue, which ends with Sam asking that difficult question, quote, what is it, Marion? She shifts in her seat, puts a hand to her face, and then lightly bites one of her fingers like she's about to start biting the nails. And what does that represent? It's the physical manifestation of an emotional issue. She's nervous and anxious and showing us through physical action. So that's when she stops at a traffic light and pedestrians cross. One of them is her boss. He just let her go home with a headache, and she claims she was going to spend the weekend in bed. But here she is out on the road again, after her boss trusted her with $40,000 in cash. Of course, he's going to be suspicious, 
if he sees her. At first, he just smiles in her direction, as he might, you know, passing in front of anyone's car. But as he keeps going, he suddenly pauses, realizing it's her, and he frowns with concern. It's obvious he's suspicious, wondering why she isn't at home now. It's like she has some other kind of a plan, and she deceived him. But we don't know that. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't stop her. He keeps going. And so, since he doesn't offer an explicit reaction in relation to the issue at hand, Marion is left to wonder, as we, the audience, are also left in suspense. In the same way we want to know what Sam is going to say about her stealing the money, we want to see what her boss will do. But Hitchcock knows better. Just like he left us in the void with Sam, suspended, he'll do the same with her boss. So, we're left in suspense. Now, we're literally about 15 seconds into Act 2, and our protagonist is already feeling the heat in a big way, even without the antagonists reacting. Marion herself is the cause of these antagonistic forces. They're psychological. Sam is not after her at this point, and neither is her boss. Now, she makes it out of town, and is out on the open road as the scene transitions. This crime is for real now. She skipped town with the money, and for all intents and purposes, is going to be a fugitive from the law. So, good in our world is easily described as light, and evil as darkness. Light is life, and darkness is death. Light is understanding, truth, and discovery, while darkness is death and decay. As she drives out of town on that road, right afterward, the scene transitions to show the sun setting. This is Marion's transformation from good to evil. She became the shadow and invited darkness into her life through the theft. So, of course, this is when the scene transitions again to night. Darkness has fallen upon Marion. But check this out. It's really interesting. When Marion pulls away from the intersection where she saw her boss, she looks over her shoulder to signify she knows she's on the run now. People are going to follow her. It's broad daylight. As the scene transitions to her out on the open road near dusk, with the sun still up, we see what looks like a crucifix superimposed on the screen over her forehead. She doesn't react to it in the light. That's when we learn it's actually the top of a telephone pole where you have two sections of wood crossing each other in a T-shape. Now, the scene transitions once again in a few seconds. Like I said, going from light to darkness, still out on the road, in a time lapse. When this happens, the crucifix, so to speak, is once again superimposed on her forehead, but in darkness this time, instead of light. Whereas she didn't react before when the crucifix was on her forehead in light, this time, in darkness, she cringes when it becomes superimposed on her face. But that's when Hitchcock immediately gives us a shot out the windshield at what she's really looking at that makes her cringe, which is the oncoming headlights. Those lights represent the good guys searching the darkness for her presence. The crucifix superimposition 
is a reference not only to her choosing the dark side, but also to the fact that she's a sociopath now, and they behave exactly like vampires. The sociopath, like the vampire, manipulates people in order to drain them of precious resources. The vampire takes your blood. The human takes your money. Vampires have a very strong aversion to crucifixes. So as Marion drives out of town, and away from an opportunity to do the right thing, the daylight starts to fade as a representation of her turning to the dark side. Yet, while it's still daylight, and the crucifix gets superimposed on her head, she doesn't react. But once night falls, and that same crucifix is superimposed on her face, she cringes. And why? She's the sociopath now. She's a vampire. Marion has manipulated everyone to drain these resources. And that's when we see that she's looking at the oncoming headlights and cringing due to them. She's in a world of darkness now. Light is her enemy. And since we get that symbolic expression in this moment, we'll watch it play out in the next scene. Marion gets tired and pulls over on the side of the road to sleep for the night while it's dark. That happens off-screen. So the next scene we see offers daylight again. Her car is sitting out in the open, alone, on the roadside. The light suggests what's about to come looking for her. The good guys. That's when a cop comes up beside her vehicle, seems to notice her sleeping inside, and pulls over. He knocks on the window, and Marion sits up sharply. She turns on the car's engine to leave, as though the cop knows she's a criminal. But he doesn't. Yet, now he's suspicious. We can't see his eyes hidden behind sunglasses. We wonder what he knows, and what he's thinking. All the while, Marion is fidgeting because, while she took a criminal action, this guy isn't reacting as though he knows that. So, we're left in that void between her wrongful action and his response. The suspense builds. The cop finds nothing wrong, and checks her license and license plate to be sure she's legit. At that point, he lets her go, but as she drives away, she notices he continues to follow her. So, like her, we wonder why, and want him to go away. We have to keep considering if he knows more than he's letting on. That's when he suddenly exits, as Marion continues past the fork in the road. The cop is gone, but we're still held in suspense, because he knows her name and the fact that she's in California. If he makes a check on her, he's eventually going to learn people are looking for her. And of course, we don't know what he already knows. So, while the cop is gone, we know damn well he could come back at any time, and if he does, it's going to be worse. And if he comes back again and still doesn't offer us anything, the suspense is going to heighten because we still don't have his reaction. We're still held in that void. And that's what makes Hitchcock such a master. He knows how to keep us in the void. Now, of course, if the cop does come back, the first thing we're going to wonder is if it's because he learned something about Marion. And we don't know, because it could just be based upon suspicion, you know, the way she was acting. Of course, that's going to happen in the next scene. 
and since we know Hitchcock, again, is a master at suspense, he's going to employ a strategy where the cop doesn't tell us if he knows anything. In fact, he's not going to say anything at all. He remains silent throughout the entire scene. That state of limbo just builds suspense because it's an ever-expanding void. You don't get to the other side where the reaction is. Now, the scene in question is Marion arriving at a used car lot. She's going to trade in her car for another, which has symbolic implications here. We know Marion just abandoned good in favor of evil. She chose darkness over light. So now that the cop has seen her driving this black car, representative of the darkness she's embraced, she's going to trade it in for a white one to try to feign a presence of embracing the light. This is a sociopathic behavior I refer to as redirecting light. The criminal manipulates situations to avoid being detected. So, along with choosing a different color of car, she's also going to create an unnatural interaction with the salesman. She's in a hurry and needs to purchase something immediately, while the salesman knows a normal interaction is one where he has to try hard to sell the car to a cautious buyer who doesn't want to make a hasty decision. People usually haggle over price as well, but Marion doesn't, and so as she hurries him along and accepts his opening price instead of negotiating, he comments about how this is the first time he's been pressured by the buyer like that. Usually he's in that role, and of course it makes him suspicious wanting to know more. Redirection of light equates to manipulation, and he can see that something is going on like that. Meanwhile, he knows nothing about her wrongdoings, but the paranoia exists in her mind, so it also exists for us as the audience. That's how Hitchcock keeps stacking the suspense, rather than building it up and releasing it with each incident. The people she comes into contact with, such as the cop and the car dealer, have no idea what she's done, but they sense redirection of light and know it's manipulative. She buys a newspaper from a dispenser and quickly flips through it looking at the headlines. She's not reading it. She's looking for something. We understand intuitively it's a search for information about the crime she committed. Marion is paranoid and wants her fears to be validated or invalidated. But what's brilliant here is Hitchcock doesn't allow the newspaper to enlighten her in the same way he doesn't allow the car dealer or the cop. It keeps her ignorant of what is known, and therefore the void continues to grow. But what all of these elements do is heighten the suspense. They just widen that void, and we remain in limbo. He even puts sunglasses on this cop to prevent us from seeking answers in his eyes. So, Marion's picking out a car at this lot. She glances at her license plate. It's from Arizona. She turns to a car in the lot and sees the license plate is California. Again, redirection of light. If the cops are looking for her, it's in her current car with Arizona plates. This is when the cop drives by stops and parks on the other side of the street. It's a great move by Hitchcock 
the cop stays at a distance and silent. So not only do we have no clue why he's here again, but we also still have no idea what he knows. He could have learned something about Marion after seeing her license and license plate. But Hitchcock has him park away from her, across the street, like a potential predator looming. That's when he gets out of the car, still in sunglasses to hide the intentions in his eyes, and stands against the side of the vehicle with his arms spread. It's a very relaxed, open body positioning, which makes us and Marion cringe because it's the equivalent of a poker face. We know he has reason to stop and be here, but he gives us nothing. Is he about to arrest her, or is he just learning more? Are other cops on the way, or is he just curious about why she's buying a different car? Beyond that, her whole point for buying the new car was to prevent people from knowing who she is. But now someone who knows her identity is watching her buy the new car she hoped to use to deflect the possibility of detection by him and others looking for her. Is it even worth making the purchase now? What is Marion going to do? That suspense keeps building because we don't get any of those answers, while we're simultaneously being bombarded with fears in relation to the questions. So Marion needs to get out the cash to buy the car, and goes into the ladies' room to do it. What we notice most prominently is that she's in front of a mirror, so we get the disunity of two images of her. There's her actual body in the restroom, and then her reflection in the mirror, and what lies between them is her shadow. It's another representation of the psychological split that brought forth young shadow. But what I find really interesting is that when she pulls the envelope of stolen cash out of her purse with her left hand, her right hand is directly under the soap dispenser. We have to remember she hasn't spent any of this money yet. While she's committed a crime, she could return every penny of the money. It's not too late. This right hand under the soap dispenser and the left hand holding the cash represents the choice between spending this stolen money, delving deeper into her criminal behavior, or stopping herself right there and washing her hands clean of the problem by doing the right thing. Now remember, we have two Marians visible here, one in front of the mirror and another reflected in it. The reflection represents the shadow, the sociopath that she's become after the psychological split, while the real Marion is the tangible one in front of the mirror. The image in the mirror, aka the product of the shadow, can only be seen holding the money. The soap dispenser is not reflected in the mirror. It's only visible in front of the original Marion in the restroom. So what Hitchcock is saying is that the shadow has no choice in the matter. It came about as a matter of indulging criminality and redirecting light, which is exactly what a mirror does, and therefore what a mirrored image is by definition. It's redirection of light, manipulation. So the split happened due to a criminal choice, which means only the real 
tangible, original Marion standing in the restroom has the option to do the right thing. Only she can decide to wash her hands clean of it. So that's why we see two Marions, one reflected and one tangible with her shadow in between. That's the sequential process of what happened. She made a choice to indulge criminality and redirect light, causing a psychological shift to becoming two people, one being the original Marion, the other the new shadow. The shadow only cares about the things related to the reason it was created. It loves the darkness, embraces the sociopathy, and can only choose the money. But the original Marion, who made the criminal choice that caused the split, leading to formation of the shadow, can still do the right thing. She possesses free will. So Hitchcock gives the option of washing her hands clean to the original Marion standing in the restroom, but her identical reflection in the mirror doesn't offer that same perspective. We don't see the soap dispenser in the mirror and therefore never see that Marion, the reflection or shadow, put a hand under it. That Marion in the mirror, the shadow, is only seen with one option reflected. The money. Now, the way she can right this wrong is to recognize her wrongdoing, take responsibility, and accept whatever punishment accompanies it. That will bring unity from the disunity she's experiencing. It will make her whole once again. But for now, the shadow leads the way. That's what you have in the one. And the irony present within that is that it doesn't reflect on its circumstances. Here we see that literally. It is merely the result of Marion's choice. So, the shadow is incapable of producing emotional change. That's up to Marion. The shadow operates within the context of the one and does so relentlessly. But lurking beneath that is Marion's need, desperately trying to come to the surface. All of these conflicts with forces of antagonism and the resulting price she pays for her criminal actions leading to them will cause the need to slowly become apparent to Marion. When she finally realizes the truth through experience, specifically failure of the want to produce desired results, her need will then also be what she wants and she will relentlessly pursue the need and achieve unity. But for now, we have that disunity displayed in the mirror. The shadow or want is operating only in the context of proceeding as planned with her criminal endeavor. The Marion standing in front of the mirror, however, represents the need. She has the power to change. So we give the Marion in front of the mirror the soap dispenser, sink, and paper towel dispenser for the symbolic purpose of washing her hands clean of this mess, while the shadow in the mirror doesn't have that option. We don't see those things. Hitchcock doesn't show us anything else in the ladies' room, and that's no coincidence. He wants us to absorb the symbolic information in the same way the protagonist encounters it. The answer is there, but not explicitly. So Marion comes back out of the restroom to finish the paperwork in the office with the car dealer. When she walks in, the cop across the street gets in his car and pulls into the lot 
right outside the office. But he still doesn't tell us why. The suspense builds. Marion comes out of the office, sees him right there, and quickly gets in her new car to leave. Meanwhile, the cop starts walking toward her vehicle. Marion pulls away, but behind her, we hear someone yell, Hey! She hits the brakes, and we're like, Oh shit, here it comes. The cop is going to arrest her. But it's the mechanic who works at the shop. He realizes she left her suitcase in the old car, along with her coat, so he runs up to her to hand them over. It looks bad, because she's in such a hurry to leave, even at the cost of forgetting her stuff. She tells him to put these things on the back seat, and leaves promptly when he does. Now, of course, the mechanic, along with the cop and car dealer, is suspicious. So as she pulls away, we see these three men standing in a staggered diagonal line in the frame of that shot, on the right side. The cop is in back, the car dealer in the middle, and the mechanic at front. On the left of the frame, in front of them, is Marion in her car, looking over her shoulder before she drives away. As she pulls away and turns her head forward, the car dealer starts to walk forward until he's in line with the mechanic, and then the cop walks forward until he's in line with both of them. At that point, they're no longer staggered and are all standing in a straight line next to each other, looking like a group instead of three individuals in different places. Here's why. Marion encountered the cop first, way back on the road. So he's at the back of the staggered line by himself. He represents one individual component of her worry or paranoia about being detected. The car dealer is the person she encountered next, farther along her journey, so he stands to the right of the cop, but a few steps ahead. And she met the mechanic most recently, so he's to the right of the car dealer, and again, a few steps ahead, closest to Marion's car. The staggered line represents these men as individual components of her paranoia. They occur to her separately, up until now, and only hold that power. But like I said earlier, Hitchcock is stacking the suspense, offering no release for all of this buildup, so it's naturally going to start having a cumulative effect that includes consideration of all these individual components as one entity, which is this. Fear. Given that, Hitchcock has the car dealer take a few steps ahead as Marion pulls out of the lot, bringing him flush with where the mechanic is standing. At the same time, the cop walks forward a few steps as well, bringing him flush with the other two men. And to what does that equate? They created unity from disunity. They now stand together, staring at the suspicious Marion leaving. Of course, they're behind her car, symbolically suggesting her problems are following her. Naturally, the next thing that happens is Marion goes through this fabrication of an internal monologue in the car in which these men convey their suspicions to one another. That's what I mean by evolution swarming. They're turning up the heat and doing it in greater numbers. Marion is in the car driving, but biting her lip 
and gripping the steering wheel hard. She's going over this conversation in her mind, in which the cop says she seemed like she was doing something wrong, and the car dealer offers him the information that she gave him $700 cash, along with her car, to get the new one. It's the first instance of Marion's paranoia where people are working together to detect what she's done. Thus, the point of showing the unity from disunity in the staggered line going to the straight one. Until now, they were all individual components. That's how crime works. As more people become aware of the wrongdoing, evolution bands together in a unit like a swarm of bees to become more effective. For instance, if you kill somebody in your home, but another person you intended to kill escapes out the front door, you only start with one problem, which is the guy who ran out the door. But if he screams and your neighbor hears it, you have two. If he's seen by someone else, three. If that person then calls the cops, you now have a bigger problem. And that's how it goes. It becomes harder and harder to redirect light as more people become involved and the stakes continue to rise. The situation with killing someone at your house could turn into a full-blown manhunt for you within the hour, involving the police, media, and the public. Everyone in the country might know. And why? They make themselves more powerful as a unit, by swarming rather than acting as individual components. So that's what Hitchcock is foreshadowing here. The antagonistic forces have achieved unity from disunity. Of course, like I said, we experience the fallout Marion endures due to this teamwork or evolutionary swarming. Instead of just wondering what Sam will say or what the cop knows or even the car dealer, now she has to worry about what they shared with each other and for one simple reason. Cumulative knowledge makes detection easier. The same thing goes for humanity's plight to create technology. We are vastly more effective as a team. Have you ever noticed teamwork is held in such incredibly high regard in society? That's why. It correlates directly to our species' purpose of detecting light, aka truth. That idea resonates with us. So if the thing everybody is trying to detect is you or your lie, it can be very scary because you know the power of teamwork. Now, let's watch this paranoia play out for her. The cop didn't know Marion was carrying a lot of cash. Now, she believes he does know because she assumes he spoke with the car dealer. She also contemplates if the cop looked at the paperwork for her car and has to wonder what he might have done then. Did he call her employer? Does her sister know? Are the cops going to be waiting at Sam's store? She doesn't know the answer to any of these questions. Which means what? It becomes far more difficult for her to redirect light. She doesn't know what they know. Did they actually even talk about her after she left? Maybe she's just paranoid. Marion can't answer or legitimize any of these huge concerns because the people in question didn't react to her acting suspiciously. They just noted it and left her in the void as the same way they did to us. We are all feeling the same suspense. So that's how Hitchcock so masterfully keeps building the suspense. 
without any of these people actually reacting to Marion and offering release for the buildup of tension, they keep poker faces. All the speculation of them conversing in her mind is just that, speculation. She believes it happened, but didn't witness it. So all of these suspicious actions she's taken have left her, a.k.a. the audience, in limbo. What we can expect moving forward is more of the same. She's going to speculate about evolution swarming back home now as well. But again, there's no way for her to qualify any of this speculation as truth. So it just amounts to paranoia. So, immediately after the internal monologue involving speculation about what the car dealer, cop, and mechanic said and did in her absence, she indulges another one where her boss is asking her co-worker in a serious tone if Marion has arrived to work yet. Of course, we know she's fabricating this in her mind, as Monday morning hasn't even arrived yet. She's not supposed to be back at work. So, the boss gets the co-worker involved, and the co-worker gets Marion's sister involved. Marion's sister then contacts the boss. The swarm is clearly growing, and unifying by way of cumulative knowledge. They're shedding their ignorance in relation to detection of Marion in the same way humanity sheds its ignorance of the truth about our world through cumulative knowledge that produces technology designed to detect light faster and more efficiently. Now, it's daylight outside the car windows during these imagined interactions. But then the boss asks her co-worker to call the rich guy from whom she stole the money. And this is big trouble. Think of him as the queen bee in the evolutionary swarm because he has a ton of resources. Resources can buy you detection. Just the thought of him getting involved immediately hits Marion like a ton of bricks. When her boss speaks the words, quote, Carolyn, get Mr. Cassidy for me, end quote, in the internal monologue, signifying that the rich guy is about to learn the truth, day instantly changes to night outside the vehicle. We're totally shrouded in darkness, which can only mean one thing. The storm is coming. Night has fallen. Everybody is after her now. Or so she thinks. We still actually have no confirmation anybody is looking for her. It's brilliant, truly. That fear, combined with its lack of validation, is paranoia. Which means what? The thing she's running from is herself, not them. And we can all relate to that. It's emotional. It's an emotionally based problem. Yet, we know that despite the fact these things are happening in her mind, it's due to the fact that they would be the most likely result of the actions she took. So for all intents and purposes, they are after her now. The storm is coming. At that moment, rain pours down from the sky. Marion can't see the road ahead, so she turns on the wipers, but it's raining too hard to make a difference. Now what's beautiful about this is the irony embedded in this idea. Early on in the film, Marion was trying to get out of the arid desert of her life in order to escape to greener pastures as depicted 
so wonderfully when she walks out of the office with the cash, coming from the painting of the desert and going toward the painting of the waterway boasting lush plant life. Now, what's the difference in terms of resources between a dry desert and a waterway with lush plant life? Rain. Copious amounts of rainfall. Water. It's humanity's greatest resource. But money, again, is society's number one resource. Yet, she took the money, and now the rain, a.k.a. resources, she believed would take her out of that desert in her life, are causing her problems. It's become an antagonist. And notice how tragic it is. And why is this detrimental? It's caused a situation in which she can't see the road ahead of her, a.k.a. the truth. That's why the windshield wipers don't even work. It's a metaphor, so they can't. So, the rain keeps pouring down, and Marion looks nervous, unable to see clearly. Again, what would allow her to see is emotional change leading to the truth. She needs to abandon this idea of being with Sam by paying off all of his debts for him. She has to let go of her want and embrace her need in a process of change. But she won't do that. So remember what I said earlier about her life being this shitty hotel? Now that the going has gotten tough and the storm is coming full force, where is she going to stop? At a shitty hotel. It's cyclical. She's right back where she started. That's always been her coping mechanism. To return to that which is familiar simply because it's shelter from the storm. Instead of remaining in Phoenix, indulging the symbolism of the stationary crane in front of the unfinished new building and her need to do the heavy emotional lifting to change, she chose to be a bird or crane who took flight after a physical manipulation of resources intended to magically give her a new life overnight. She's emotionally trapped in a depressive cycle. Therefore, when she employs the physical manifestation of an emotional issue through sociopathy to change her circumstances, the only possible result is to end up right back where she started, a shitty hotel. Her story started there in the first scene, and now it will end there. There is simply no physical means of escape from an emotional issue in mortality. You can't transcend these things. Once we're integrated with AI, that problem will be solved. Thus the reason it is such a prominent consideration in our world today, especially within criminality. But what I really love about the dichotomy of this situation and the irony is that Marion desperately wanted rainfall in her life to turn her world from a desert into a lush oasis, but now that the storm has come, she's equally desperate to avoid it. It causes her to be unable to see the physical truth outside her windshield on the road ahead, and also makes her emotionally incapable of finding it in her heart. So Marion can't see anything as she drives. The rain is just hammering the windshield, and soon there are no other cars around. Darkness envelops her. But suddenly, up ahead, 
She sees something. Light. It's a brightly lit sign that reads, Bates Motel. Beneath the words, we see vacancy. This is her only option now. She's been stuck in a shitty hotel of a life, and refusing to change emotionally has brought her right back to where she began in the cycle. There's nowhere to run. But she can still change emotionally and make the right choice despite the consequences. In order to do that, she'll have to learn something in this place. Let's see how she responds. So Marion checks out the office, and there's nobody around. She goes back outside and looks up the hill next to the hotel. There's a big, gothic type of house sitting on top. At that point, she sees the lights on in one of the bedrooms upstairs. That's when a figure who appears to be a woman walks past one of the windows in that bedroom. But what we really need to understand here is the symbolism embedded. Now, we see this person as a silhouette, which could also be thought of as a shadow. And so whoever that person is, is not the original in the same way that Marion is operating in the context of the shadow. So, whomever lives here is hiding a secret in the same way that Marion is. Now, Marion gets back in her car and taps the horn a few times, which leads to a young man exiting the house up on the hill and hurrying down to the motel to meet her. He says, Gee, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you in all this rain. Go ahead in, please. Many points at the motel. And this is where we get an often overlooked moment. As they enter the office, the first thing we see is both of their reflections framed in a mirror on the wall. What we should glean from this is not only the inference that these two people both have the same problem of having undergone that psychological split to indulge the shadow, but due to that commonality, this young man is going to be the one to teach Marion her lesson. Of course, that happens, but it occurs with a huge twist of irony for this reason. He helps cure Marion's issue with insight from his experiences stuck living in his own shitty motel of a life, which leads to wisdom that allows her to make a better choice. But he doesn't cure his own ailment despite her reciprocated wisdom because only he can decide to change emotionally. Marion is going to choose change. But Norman never does that. So this is a time bomb about to go off right in her face. So Marion, in the midst of the rainstorm, somehow went off the new highway and veered onto the old one that nobody travels anymore. Of course, the new highway represents change, and the old highway represents stagnancy and decay. Both Norman and Marion will prove to be off-track in life, stuck in the cycle of their old ways due to unwillingness to indulge emotional change and carve out a new path. Norman never tried to get out of the shitty motel that represents his life, and Marion has failed to do so by engaging the physical manifestation of her emotional issue with a crime as a potential solution. It isn't going to work. 
So she ends up right back where she started, like Norman. So we have to wonder, how did he get stuck here? Was it due to a crime? It sure was. Now, anyhow, in Marion's shitty motel, men come and go from her life. But in Norman's, which is literally empty, nobody does that. Norman is alone here. His mother lives in the house on the hill. But he remains loyal and stays with her, rather than marrying a woman and leaving, because emotional change is hard. Norman doesn't want to leave his mother behind. Marion is going to see the self-destruction that choice has perpetrated upon Norman's well-being and realize that will be her if she doesn't proceed to do the right thing. So, what Norman needed to do was grow up emotionally, find a woman to love and marry, and start a family of his own. There would have been happiness in that. That would have put him back on the new highway, headed in the right direction in life. But he didn't go there. Instead, he mimicked Marion in the sense that he employed the physical manifestation of an emotional issue by way of criminality in order to compensate. More on that soon. For now, here's how Marion and Norman recognize each other for what they are. He says, in relation to why the motel is empty, quote, they moved away the highway. Marion responds, quote, oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. And then Norman proceeds to openly acknowledge their mutual issue with, quote, I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that, end quote. Shout out to screenwriter Joseph Stefano for some great subtext in that dialogue. Subtext is so important to dialogue because it represents the unrealized need. The want gets the spotlight on screen. It's always explicit. The need, however, is beneath. Utilizing subtext allows audiences to reach the same realization as a protagonist. Crafting subtext to have a voice consistent with the emotional need precipitates greatness. Okay, anyway, so Norman goes on to ask Marion to sign in at the front desk at the motel office. She enters the name Marie Samuels, redirecting life with 